This is episode 78 of the 99th Forever podcast. I'm Eric Friesen, and my guest tonight is making his fourth appearance on the podcast from the cult of hockey, Bruce McCurdy. Bruce, it's good to have you back on the show. Hey, Eric, how are you doing? Yeah, I'm doing good. I always look forward to talking with you about the Oilers' glory days, and while most of our conversation today will be about the 1980s and early 1990s, uh, you and I will be talking about the Oilers from this decade for the first time as well. Mm-hmm. Some glory days are uh, upon us. I think this is maybe not the right timing to say they've returned, um, but uh, things are things certainly have <laughs> taken a turn for the better in the last few years. Yeah, it's it, and it's still early in the season, so we remain hopeful that uh, this year's uh, edition of the Oilers are going to turn things around. But first, uh, Charlie Huddy and Doug Waite were enshrined in the Edmonton Oilers Hall of Fame prior to last night's game. I know you were at the game, so I I'd was. like to get a thought from you uh, just on both of their careers with the Oilers. So let's start in chronological order with Huddy. Uh, while Paul Coffey was winning Norris trophies and breaking scoring records for defensemen, his defensive partner, Huddy, was quietly a big part of the Oilers' dynasty as well. What made Huddy such a versatile and effective player for the Oilers for parts of 11 seasons? Well, he kind of came out of nowhere, didn't he? Like, he he was drafted. He wasn't drafted. Uh, he was signed as an undrafted free agent in the summer of 1979 after the phenomenal uh 1979 draft that included two full draft classes of 20 and 19 year olds. The league was just in the process of lowering the draft age to 18. It was a two year process of double draft classes and both were brilliant, 79 and 80. Uh, moreover, in 79, there was just six rounds for the 21 team. So only 126 players got selected. And, um, Unselected were guys like Tim Kerr, who went on to four consecutive 50-goal seasons with Philadelphia Flyers, and Charlie Huddy, who went on to become one of the Magnificent Seven, who won five Stanley Cups in Edmonton. And he was exactly what the doctor ordered for... Uh, he was yin to Paul Coffey's yang. Like, they, they just fit together, like, uh, uh, hand in a glove, uh, uh Huddy looked after a whole lot of the little details, and he had enough offense in his game that he was able to uh, to help out in that respect too. Uh, he was the one who made the shift. They were both left left shot defensemen. He was the one who made the shift over to the right side. Uh, did so very successfully, and he just had what I would call an all round game. You know, he did he did a little bit of everything. He could move the puck out of his own end. He could keep the puck in the other end. In fact, if I had to pick one signature skill of Charlie Huddy, that would be it. His, his phenomenal ability along the blue line to keep the play alive and onside and uh, continue the cycle. Uh, and that was part of the reason that Huddy was uh, a regular on the Oilers' power play. You might think in those days and think big five automatically, that's the power play. Uh but the days of four forwards, one defenseman were still very much in the future in those days. So Huddy and Coffey manned the points and uh, three forwards up front, typically uh, Gretzky, Curry and Anderson uh, was uh, probably the most common deployment in those uh, days. And poor Mark Messier, he had, uh, he had to spend time on the second unit uh, uh, at times throughout that. And I'm sure, I'm sure there are, uh, uh, you know, 
he he had his own time on the first unit, but I think the most common one was the one with Curry and Anderson, and of course the great one. Uh, anyway, Huddy was just such a terrific. Um, uh, he was a glue player and very smart guy. As you know, he went on to become an assistant coach in the NHL, and his coaching career was actually longer than his uh, uh, than his playing career, which is to say, between the two of them, close to 40 years in the in the best league of them all, from a guy who never even got drafted out of junior. And he could score some. You know, his first three years, he had three full years, he had 61, 52, 46 points. And, uh, oh, sorry, he had 50. 57, 42, and 51 points. And the other numbers I gave you, 61, 52, 46, those were his plus figures. Wow. Like this guy was a phenomenal outscorer. And he led the league in plus minus in 82, it, 83. Yeah, the year that they first, and it was a very short span that they actually recognized the uh, um, leading plus minus player, and it was called the Emery Edge. And people use the fact that Charlie Huddy won the first one to ridicule plus minus, of course, which generally uh, many people have been doing ever since. And while the stat does have its weaknesses, uh, it also has its strengths. Uh, and in his uh, uh, in the seven year span from uh, when he first broke in midway through 81, 82, uh, right up to 87, 88, the fourth cup that uh, after which Gretzky led town. He had a cool plus 253 in 483 games. Not bad. <laughs> and in the same span in the playoffs, let's see now. Uh, he was uh, plus 71 in 91 games. Plus 71 in 91 games. And he does rank among the very top players of all time in, in uh, playoff plus. And by all time, I mean just in the time they've been recording the statistic, which, of course, is not all time, all time. But uh, since uh, expansion, I believe, uh, 67. So anyway, Charlie was uh, uh, a scorer and an outscorer, and he was a winner. And, uh, uh, you know, you look at him and, and Paul Coffey, two very different players. But yeah. as you as you sort of alluded to, they blended very well together. Were you mm-hmm. surprised that Glenn Sather trusted two young defensemen on the same pair early in the 1980s as opposed to maybe putting coffee with a more veteran player well he had basically three young defensemen in his top four lee fogland was really the vet there and because uh, kevin Lowe was uh roughly the same age as uh as the other fellows i mean Huddy uh, was born in 59 coffee in 61 low i believe was also 59 uh, you know, they were they all coming up together as young players. Of them, uh, Huddy needed a little bit of seasoning, about a year and a half seasoning in the minor leagues before he emerged as a as a full-time NHLer. But uh, uh, he was, uh, I'll check that, more like two and a half years. He, he got a cup of coffee his second year, and then he got, became a full-time halfway through his third year in 81-82, just as the Oilers were emerging as a, as a true NHL powerhouse. Uh, but no, nothing Glenn Sather did surprise me. I mean, he trusted young players with everything. Like the young players were the were the core of his team. And right from early days, you know, he went with uh, 
you know, his big four up front were all young guys as well, and he used them in every situation. And it was uh, uh, it was the core strength of his team. And uh, to say there's credit, he rolled with it. For sure. And uh, when the Oilers returned to the playoffs in 1997, I was eight years old. And for fans around my age, Doug Waite was the first high-end player we watched on the Oilers. He arrived in Edmonton following the dynasty and was the best player on a team operating on a shoestring budget for nearly a decade. Bruce, Waite is best remembered as an elite playmaker, but he brought a wide range of skills to the table, didn't he? Yeah, he sure did. I mean, elite playmaker in his career, uh, 278 goals, 755 assists. So a better part of a three-to-one ratio assists to goals, which is a, a elite playmaker. But certainly he uh, uh, he had the capacity to uh, do his own sniping. I mean, 278 goals in his career is, is uh, uh, a pretty decent total. Um, but first and forward, a playmaker. But that aside, he there were other aspects to his game, uh, including a, a, a real edge to his game. Like he he had a, a little bit of a nasty element to him, and uh, I remember him taking a major penalty for what they call a hit from the behind. I maintain it was a hit from the side in a playoff game against Dallas. That uh, uh, that uh, you know it didn't help, but it it just show it was an example of the edge that he played with. Another incident that I remember well is the time Brian Marchman, a former teammate of Waite, but now with San Jose Sharks, uh, delivered one of his infamous knee-on-knee checks to Waite in a game in San Jose early in the first period. And Waite limped off to the dressing room. Uh, Ethan Morrow challenged Marchman to a fight, and, and he got rewarded with the instigator penalty, and San Jose got a power play, even though Marchman had kneed and injured Edmonton's captain and star player. Let's start there. And then a few minutes later, Waite returned from the dressing room, got back out in the ice, and the first thing he did was make a beeline for Brian Marchman and challenge him and uh, and take him on in a uh, a scrap, which is, you know, Marchman was a pretty tough guy, and he... Yeah. Uh, he would he would take anyone on. One thing Marchman wasn't was that he w- he wouldn't run and hide. Uh, he would stand up to it. Uh, anyway, by the time that melee was over, uh, our friend Mr. Referee saw fit to award wait six penalties for 39 minutes, matching his sweater number. 39 <laughs> minutes for a single incident. Two minors, a major, two misconducts, and a game misconduct. It's Meanwhile, Brian Marchman got zero. Zero, like he didn't get a roughing minor. Like any fight you ever see, you know, the guy, the, even the guy that gets instigated, he typically gets a major, and the other guy gets extra over and above his major. So this was, uh, uh, I think, the second longest penalty kill in Oilers history, uh, behind only the Kevin Lowe versus Tony McKegney incident in uh, 1980. And they had to kill nine minutes, and the, uh, the team was uh, so inspired that they actually won that penalty kill, one goal to zero. Oh, wow. And wound up uh, coming away with a point in a very tough building, the Shark Tank, at that time. And But what it just showed was that, you know, you mess around with Doug Waite, you better be prepared to uh, uh, answer the bell because uh, he wasn't a guy to, you know, wait for a teammate to... To, to do stuff, you know, he would get right in there himself. And, and uh, I respected that. And I for sure respected his, uh, his um, 
uh, you know, his, his leadership, his, his playmaking ability, and his ability to score the occasional dazzling goal, like the one we've seen a number of times lately, where he's kind of skated back, literally backwards between the Calgary Flames defense. And uh, then did a back backhand to forehand roof job deke on uh, the goalie Rick Tabaracci. And, uh, you know, one one of the great Oilers goals of all time, to be honest. And uh, you, you watched the replay of that one. Yeah. It was still breathtaking. So, anyways, he uh, uh, fully fully earning the honor of the Oilers Hall of Fame. So far, they haven't missed a beat. I think all four guys that they put up in the last two years have, uh, have fully warranted the honor. And the only thing is, you know, it's only two a year and they got more guys to honor than... It's going to take them a while to catch up. And we've got guys like Bill Hunter and Joey Moss in terms of off-ice people and uh, any number of on-ice players as well, including Essa Tikkanen, Randy Gregg, and, you know, on on down the line of of uh, of greats who uh, uh, graced the oil drop and uh, will hopefully get their day in the sun eventually. Well, without a doubt. And although Waite didn't win Stanley Cups with the Oilers, like captains Wayne Gretzky and Mark Messier before him, he led the team to a couple memorable playoff upsets in the late 90s. Bruce, how valuable was Waite in not only getting the Oilers back to the playoffs after a four-year absence, but then knocking off a couple cup contenders like the Dallas Stars and the Colorado Avalanche in back-to-back years? Well, he seemed to thrive in the playoffs. Like he, he, the sort of edginess of his game, the compete level in his game, really shone through. Uh, I certainly remember him and uh, Todd Marchant two on two against uh, Dallas uh, in overtime in Game Seven, where he fed Marchant and Marchant uh, burned wide uh, uh, around Grant Ledger and then buried a. Uh, a, a rare, perfect shot uh, past Andy Moog for the series winner, and, and you know Waite was uh, uh, was heavily involved in, in uh, that series deciding play. Is one you know one that quickly pops to mind. Uh, but he just you know he was sort of the the heart and soul guy, and uh, not always the case for a guy who's first and foremost a scorer, but. Uh, he was uh, uh, he was to me a courageous player and and a strong leader. Uh, speaking of which, I think he led the team in scoring seven years that he was yep. here. The eight. second most in Oilers history yeah, behind only, only the great one. Yeah, who had a nine out of nine, of course, for Wayne, or ten out of ten if you count the WHA. Mm-hmm. And he, uh, but Wait was uh, every year, but one year he missed about half the season with injury, and uh, his line mate Bill Guerin picked up the slack. Uh, but otherwise, he was just a constant at the top of that team leaderboard. And fair to say that he didn't have a huge amount of help that uh, uh, that players in other eras like well Gretzky or or McDavid, you know, that were surrounded with. Uh, other sort of very high-end scorers, and Waite was, you know, clearly the standard bearer on that team. Well, without a doubt. And lastly, before we move on, uh, you touched on this briefly with some of the names who will be in the running in the coming years, but in your opinion, who do you think should be the next two inductees to the franchise's Hall of Fame? Players? 
it just if you if it was your choice and yep. it was anyone who's eligible under the criteria, who would you elect to the Hall of Fame next year? Oh boy. Well, I named two off-ice guys, and I'd like to see them get in. Bill Hunter and uh, Joey Moss, I think, is, uh, you know, just in some ways the face of the long-term Edmonton Oilers franchise. Um, so I, I, I will... Uh, do a little dance and say those are the two off ice, and I'll take two on ice. And I named them already, actually, in uh, persons of Randy Gregg, who I greatly admire, uh, who won in the city not just five Stanley Cups with the Oilers as one of the Magnificent Seven, but also two national championships with the Alberta Golden Bears. He captained the Canadian Olympic team, and he's been a pillar of our community for a long, long time. And to me, he's a uh, he would be a very he's the only one of the magnificent seven at this point who isn't up there. Huddy being the sixth one, and the other five having already banners raised in their in their honor. And man, I like Esatikinen as a as a choice for uh, for that spot. I also like Al Shemsky. You know, there's it's a long it, list of yeah, guys. It, it, it's yeah, it's a good list. We're good for at least the next three to five years, uh, in my opinion, Eric. Yeah. And, you know, of course, uh, Wild Bill Hunter is from my hometown of Saskatoon. So, of course, mm-hmm. uh, I'd, I'd love to see him have his uh, his moment and uh, be enshrined in the Hall of Fame as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, all right. Um, let's move on to our main topic of discussion today. And since we're only two days away from the 2023 Heritage Classic at Commonwealth Stadium between the Edmonton Oilers and Calgary Flames, I thought it would be a perfect time to have you on the podcast to discuss the playoff history of the Battle of Alberta. But before we look back on that first playoff meeting between the Oilers and Flames, I just want to start by asking you, what do you remember about the first Battle of Alberta game you ever attended? Well, I attended the first Battle of Alberta game period that uh, took place in the National Hockey League. And uh, it was in the uh, fall of 1980 uh, when the Flames had just gotten into the league some said on the coattails of the success of the Oilers the year before that people realized Alberta was hockey country and uh, Atlanta Georgia was not (laughs) and so the uh, uh, the Flames wound up in uh, in Calgary and kept their name from Atlanta which has always been a little incongruous but uh, uh, um, the very first game uh, the first Goal in the Battle of Alberta was scored by none other than Dave Smenko, uh, who was enjoying his greatest week as an NHL player, give or take the uh, uh, the cups that he won. Uh, but in 80-81, uh, uh, he went on a road trip with the Oilers, and they put him up on Gretzky's line for a while. And uh, he scored on a Saturday night uh, a goal in the Islanders against the Islanders, on the Sunday night, he got a hat trick and an assist in a 4-2 win at Madison Square Garden. Can you Not imagine? Too bad. And then he came home, and the crowd was greeting him for that. And wouldn't you know? He goes out and he scores the the uh, uh, the first goal in the uh, Battle of Alberta. I'm just getting the details. October 22nd, 1980. And Dave Semenko from Wayne Gretzky and Blair McDonald. There you go. That's a first line power play goal, no less. Uh, in the first period, and then in the second period, uh, 
Dave Semenko scores again, his sixth of the young season from Wayne Gretzky, and that stood up as the game winner in the 5-3 Oilers triumph. So uh, my memory of the first Battle of Alberta is of Dave Semenko, offensive hero, and I believe first star of that game. And deservedly so, it sounds like it. Uh, and, you know, uh, he, as you he said. He wound up scored, with 11 on the season. Like this was, yeah. a, you know, it was just His like an out-of-body experience where everything right. was going right for him. And he was playing, you know, really well, at, as well as he could play. And he was a big guy, you know, with some uh, some degree of, of uh, you know, big lumbering talent. But, when you know, when he got his speed up uh, steaming down the uh uh, the wing, he could be an impressive uh, sight. And yeah. he certainly had a big role to play in the Battle of Alberta in subsequent years. And I didn't realize that he scored the first ever goal in Battle of Alberta history. I, I did know that he scored the final goal in WHA history yes. in the 1979 Avco Cup final. But uh, yeah, that's an interesting fact to know that he was also the, the first goal scorer in this uh legendary rivalry as well. And in fact, my first Battle of Alberta was also my first ever NHL game on April 1st, 2006. Oh, yeah. And, uh, uh, yeah, I was 17 years old and, uh, we, my, we, my parents uh, and my sister and I drove out to Edmonton for the game and took the Friday off school to make sure we were there for, uh, hockey night in Canada the next night. And unfortunately the Oilers lost four to one that night. Um, I did get to see George LaRock beat Chris Simon in a fight though. So that was the, <laughs> probably the, that's the a one. heavyweight tilt. Yeah, it was. That was probably the best moment of the night. And um, then, uh, you know, it, 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 although that game didn't turn out well, uh, 2006 turned out to be a pretty special year for the Oilers still. Yeah, it worked out not too bad. They were kind of nip and tuck for the playoffs there. Right to the uh, end, around yeah. Around that time. They, they, they needed the second wins, last and they game. didn't get in until, like, the, the very, very late in the, in the season. I think game 81, they clinched yeah. the playoff spot. They beat Anaheim, I think it was 2-1, yeah. and Alish Hemsky scored the winner. In I can picture the goal in minute. my head. <laughs> Six, I was at that game, and he scored oh, in the okay. 60th minute. And then I went home, and I listened to, who was it they were battling with? Uh, Vancouver. Uh, and I, I listened to it on the internet, the third period of the Vancouver game on the West Coast that the Canucks lost, and the Oilers had clinched with, you know, the double result, the win... The win for Edmonton, the loss for Vancouver, put Edmonton yeah. over the top. And, I mean, just to barely scrape their way into the playoffs and then go all the way to mm-hmm. Game 7 of the Stanley Cup Final, I still consider it the most fun I've ever had watching hockey. And, uh, I mean, hopefully this current edition of the Oilers will be able to have a run like that sometime soon as well. That was a Chris Pronger team, you know, and they led the NHL. They, had the, they allowed the few shots on goal of any team in the league that year. Yeah. I think they had the third best shot differential and they they just couldn't get any saves. They had this three-headed monster playing net until the trade deadline and they went out and got Dwayne Rolson and kind of solved that problem. And that sort of was the missing link on the team that that, that uh, set the stage for them making that run. Yeah, Ty Conklin, UC Markin, and I believe Mike Morrison was the third. Yes. The, the little Morrison Mike was the guy they'd bring in to, for the shootouts. Because didn't they had, bring him in once just for the shootout? He didn't yes. play a single minute in the game. Yes, yes. 
That's, I mean, that's such a rare strategy. <laughs> I mean, I, I can't imagine another team trying to do that today of bringing in a cold goalie who's been sitting yeah. on the bench for 60 minutes or 65 minutes, I guess, to uh, jump into a shootout. But yeah, I mean, it was effective for him for a short period of time. Yeah, well, he was, uh, they were, they were battling hard, you know, that season. They, they won only 28 games in regulation that year and they lost 28 and the other 26 all went to uh overtime or the shootout didn't they and also so, set the franchise record for most road wins that year uh i doubt it just because i didn't have enough wins okay but maybe I, in the I, playoffs I maybe that. in the playoffs they did because okay. yeah I, I, if, if that's specific to the playoffs uh very possibly just as it was a fact that I thought I remembered, I'll have to look back on it one of these times. Uh, and Bruce, as someone who's followed the NHL since the 1960s, where would you rank the Battle of Alberta amongst the fiercest rivalries you've ever watched in your lifetime? Well, I, my personal experience, number one, because uh, of course I was in the building for a bunch of those games, especially during the heat of the rivalries in the 80s and early 90s when I was a season ticket holder. Um, but, you know, there are other uh, rivalries. I mean, the Islanders-Rangers rivalry is, uh, um, you know, fairly historic. And, I mean, in all-time terms, Montreal-Toronto, Montreal-Boston are way up there. But uh, in the spirit of this podcast, I'll choose the Battle of Alberta. And thankfully, the team we both <laughs> cheer for is the the superior team in that rivalry, which always makes it better. Well, in the playoffs, they certainly were, and that's, uh, <laughs> that's where we're headed next. <laughs> oh, good. Regular season, Calgary actually has a better record. Yeah. But in the playoffs, the Oilers have convincingly the, the better record. And uh, let's look back at that first series now. So after sweeping the Winnipeg Jets in the opening round of the 1983 playoffs, the Oilers moved on to face the Flames in the Smythe Division final. Uh, Bruce, was this the most highly anticipated playoff series in Oilers history at the time? First one against Calgary? Uh, I'll say no, just because in 81, when they played Montreal in the first round, when, you know, Montreal was just removed from being a four-time dynasty and the Oilers were just a fresh new NHL team playing, you know, the most storied franchise of all and then beating them the way they did. Uh, that the, like, Calgary was a rival, but Edmonton expected to beat Calgary and they did. In fact, they thumped them in, in 83. Uh, and that said, my, my own experience was odd in that for this particular series, I was nowhere near Edmonton. In fact, I was in Rankin Inlet in what is now Nunavut. So I watched all the games, all five of the games on the hotel bar in Rankin Inlet. I was up there on uh, uh, on uh, business at the time. And uh, so it was a very different experience, but I, I found my comfort zone in that hotel bar, not with, the, not with the libations or anything, but with the big, well, the medium-sized tube screen of the day. Uh, watching the Oilers make mincemeat of the Flames. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's... Uh, may, you probably would have uh, liked to have been back in, in Edmonton, but uh, still yes. get this, it, always better to just to see uh, the Oilers beat the Flames no matter where you are. Yeah. 
Yeah, well, I was in the uh, out in the middle of nowhere. I think I was out on one edge of nowhere, right on the Hudson Bay. Yep. And uh, in game one of that first ever playoff battle of Alberta, it was Mark Messier who scored early and often for his hometown team, Bruce. Yeah, it sure was. It was. A, I remember this game pretty well. It was. A, it was a, a man-to-man showdown between Messier and Paul Reinhardt, who scored all three Calgary goals in what was to be a six-to-three Edmonton win. But Messier answered all of those goals plus one more, uh, scoring uh, four times uh, in. Uh, uh, leading the oil to a fairly comfortable win in the end. Of course, Messier had a little more help than Reinhardt did, and um, it was. Uh, but it was Messier who was the really hot figure, uh, uh, really throughout the first three rounds of those playoffs in '83. Uh, uh, before he banged up his shoulder against the Hawks, he was uh, uh, he was dynamite, and he had you know four goals in, in this particular game, and. Uh, Gretzky, for his part, had, where are you, Wayne? Nothing. Not even a point. Oh, what a poser. (laughs) (laughs) He surely made up for it in other games in that series. Uh, Oh, yeah, 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 he was. uh, We'll get to one in particular in a minute. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and in game two, five different Oilers skaters scored en route to a convincing 5-1 victory and a 2-0 series lead at Northlands Coliseum. And Bruce, although the Oilers were loaded with offensive superstars, it always helped when guys like Randy Gregg and Don Jackson could chip in a goal, didn't it? Yeah, and they scored consecutively in the uh, uh, late in the f- uh, first period that opened up a three to one Oilers lead, and it just kind of hung around a three to one, and then they finally padded it in the third period with a couple more. Uh, but um, it sure does. I mean, Willie Lindstrom was another depth guy that potted a goal in that game. And the others, well, Yari Curry and Paul Coffey, we, we've heard of them. But uh, uh, that was a game. Uh, I don't remember a whole lot about it because it was just sort of convincing. Edmonton was the better team. Uh, you know, it was it was a rough game. Like the penalty column, as usual, is very, very long. We've got... Uh, 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 well, Dave Smenko and Tim Hunter, delay of game. That was the first one. And you know that they weren't shooting the puck over the glass. They were uh, <laughs> a little rougher were, than that. Yeah, yeah. They were. They dropped the gloves and didn't fight or something similar. And they, the refs dealt with it that way. But we also had uh, a fight, a uh, second game in a row between Don Jackson and Jim Poplinski. Uh, one by oh, three games in a row they fought, and Jackson won all three. Uh, in my biased view, at least, and just a lot of rough stuff going on, and you know, just chippiness and sort of Edmonton Calgary type stuff, and uh, Oilers cruised. I think Andy Moog had a fairly strong game, but uh, you know, Edmonton wasn't never really threatened. Once they once they got that two goal lead, they just uh, uh, by their standards shut things down. And after winning both games on home ice, Wayne Gretzky broke the NHL record for most points in a playoff game with seven, including four goals and three assists. As the Oilers routed the Flames 10-2 to in Game 3 at the Stampede Corral, Bruce, it's now been more than 40 years since that game in April of 1983. 
Where would you rank Gretzky's seven-point night against the Flames amongst his most dominant single-game playoff performances with the Oilers? <laughs> yeah, well, it's definitely pretty high on that list. He would match the, He got another seven-point game against Winnipeg Jets in 85, I think it was. And strangely, that was one of the very first and still one of the very, very few uh, Wayne Gretzky records to be broken. Uh, and generally, the only Gretzky records that do get broken are the uh, single game or fastest two shorthanded goals or, you know, something that's in such a small quantity that it's possible for someone else to. Because any take, of the career marks uh, are just Patrick so out of Sund- reach. Yeah, the career marks, forget it. You know, or, uh, Patrick Sundstrom wound up with an eight point game to knock Gretzky down a peg on that uh, leaderboard. Pretty sure he's the only one to have three such games. He had also had one against L.A. Kings, uh, his future team, in uh, in '87. Uh, and we've talked about on this podcast in the past as well. Mm-hmm, yes, that's the night he broke Jean Beliveau's record. Yep, wound up the night seven points ahead of him. <laughs> <laughs> Career record for points. Anyway, in this this particular game, uh, I'll never forget this game. And uh, this is one that, for whatever reason, this one game got picked up and is occasionally shown at places like NHL Network. So I've seen it rebroadcast a couple of times to to solidify some of the details. But actually, well, right before for- the playoffs in 2022, I think I think mm-hmm. right before Game One between the Oilers and Flames in the second round, I believe they showed this on NHL <laughs> Classics as almost to just get the fans you know psyched uh-huh. up for the yeah. the upcoming playoff series yeah well it was a classic and it started this was fairly typical for the flames of that day was that they would play the Oilers in edmonton and you know and there'd be some rough stuff and so on but they'd go back to calgary and then the fights would break out and it seemed like most of the big brawls between edmonton and calgary took place in calgary in this case the uh, old calgary corral um and not five minutes into the first period, uh, there was a an incident involving Dave Semenko, uh, Don Jackson, Tim Hunter, and Jim Plaplinski, with uh, uh, Semenko taking on Hunter and Plaplinski and Jackson having their third straight tilt for the third straight game. Both Semenko and Jackson got the heave-ho four minutes into the first period. And for Calgary, uh, Poplinski got the boot. Uh, and at that point, I was like a little bit concerned that, you know, Edmonton just lost their two toughest players and Calgary's kind of gooning it up out there. What's going to happen next? Not to mention the fact that Semenko took a five-minute match penalty uh, in the brawl. I think it was for kneeing after, in the aftermath of the fight. Anyways, he got the boot and Calgary got a five-minute power play. And you're thinking, okay, here it comes. And the Oilers killed uh, the first four minutes of the penalty, and then in the fifth minute, Edmonton scores. Shorthanded goal, coffee from Gretzky and Curry. Not bad, penalty killers for Edmonton on the ice. And it set a trend. That was the only power play in the first period, and Edmonton scored. In the second period, there was one power play uh, on a Kevin Lowe hooking penalty. Uh, for Calgary, and Edmonton scored again. Wayne Gretzky from Yari Curry and Randy Gregg. And then in the third period, there was one power play again. Lee Fogland took a hooking penalty, 
Edmonton scored again, Mark Messier from Wayne Gretzky. So literally Edmonton scored 10 goals in this game, 10 to two win. Not only did they not score a power play goal, they didn't even have a power play in the entire game. Calgary had three power plays and Edmonton scored a shorthanded goal on all three. I've never seen the like since. And I, I, honestly, I think, Eric, I could live to be 300 years old and I wouldn't see it again. No, it's three very for rare. Three shorties on the penalty kill. Yeah. And I mean, if you if you just watch that game, it, yeah. it really looked like Gretzky was a man against boys. It just seemed oh, yeah. every time he touched the puck, something magical happened. And it seemed like he was just creating scoring chances at will, which was commonplace for him at this time. But it, there were games where it seemed like everything seemed to go in for him. And this was one of those nights. Yeah. Yeah, and his passes were finding targets, and the targets were scoring. I mean, those shorties by Coffee and Messier uh, were uh, a couple of his assists. He also set up Messier. Messier had a hat trick. Hat trick goal. <laughs> Overshadowed. In the third period. So Wayne wound up with four goals himself and three primary assists. And Edmonton, like, there's, the stars came out to shine. Four for Wayne, three for for coffee, one each for Anderson and, uh, uh, sorry, four for coffee or Gretzky, three for Messier, one each for coffee and Anderson and Curry only had three assists on this night. And, uh, one of the bottom six guys, Ray Cote also scoring, but otherwise it was the, the main guys doing almost all of the damage. And Gretzky seemed to have some of his bigger moments in that building. I mean, let's not forget the first time he hit 200 points in a season was at the Stampede yeah. Corral. Sure was. Yep. Set up Pat Hughes in the uh, in uh, a rare time that he got a big ovation from the fans in Calgary because they recognized 200 points was pretty special. Uh, and this was in uh, uh, March of 1982. Uh, he got his 200th point in the first period, and in classic Gretzky fashion, he set an entirely unrelated NHL record later in the game when he scored two shorthanded goals in 27 seconds. And so that that record's gone, and it was subsequently beaten by the one in the same Pat Hughes that that scored his the goal that was his 200th point, uh, who got two in 25 seconds the next year. That was the first Gretzky record to fall. And then, believe it or not, yet a third Oiler, Esatikinen, would break that record again in 1988 with two shorties in 12 seconds, and that's wow. still the record. So the Oilers have owned, of the 80s, absolutely owned all of the shorthanded records, and they still own basically most of them. Oh, definitely. And, you know, 10 years ago when I was going to broadcasting school in Calgary, I had the opportunity to play in a charity hockey game at the the old Corral. A, a friend of mine was an employee at the Stampede, and he asked if I wanted to come out and uh, mm-hmm. play in their event. And, you know, I was just playing rec hockey at school at the time, but I thought, you know, what an opportunity to get the chance to skate in the same building where Wayne Gretzky uh, set some of his biggest records. And uh, I think that's the only time I've ever skated in the same uh, arena that he has. So I wanted to take advantage of that opportunity. No doubt. And I don't believe it's still standing today, though. I think they might have knocked it down. The corral? Yeah. I can't mm-hmm. I, I can't remember if they I'll have to look into that if they put something else I'm there. I was I know I went to the Olympics there in 1988. 
Uh, I went to a game in the uh, Saddle Dome and a game in the Corral that were basically ongoing at the same time. It's it's a long story, but it okay. was uh, it was my one lifetime Olympic experience was watching two simultaneous hockey games. Was that the only time you've ever been to the Saddle Dome, or have you seen other games? Uh, no, there? I saw Edmonton get absolutely thumped there in. Uh, uh, 1989-90 season, they lost seven to two. Uh, there was a bus tour that went down, and then the next night they, they played the backup game in Edmonton, and the Oilers won six nothing. So they actually won the total goals on the back to back, but I saw the one Just in Calgary. Missed the, missed the, the, the good one. Mm-hmm. I, I've only been to one Battle of Alberta ever in that building, and unfortunately, well. In a sense, fortunately, I got to see Leon Dreisaitl's 50th goal live. Oh, right, right. Okay, this was but, the game Wayne. Uh, this is the game Connor got hurt. Yeah, yeah. So it yeah. was a. It's a very bittersweet uh, night. It, it was actually when we were hosting our our heavy hockey showdown game that mm-hmm. uh, we have here at our network. And um, yeah, like I said, it, the, the night started off on a pretty good note and uh, ended on a not so good note. But uh, it's one that I'll definitely never forget. That's for sure. And uh, after taking a commanding 3-0 series lead, the Oilers looked to complete the sweep on the road, but despite a late push, they ultimately fell just short in their comeback bid, Bruce. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 6-5. This was the last uh, playoff game. Uh, in fact, this was the last NHL game played in the Corral. And uh, the Oilers wanted to finish them off. But after beating Calgary so convincingly in the, in the prior game, uh, they came out rather predictably with a slow start and Calgary came out with the kind of desperation that one associates with the team on the brink and not to mention that they'd been badly embarrassed on their home ice uh, and the Flames rolled out to uh, uh, a 6-2 lead halfway through the third period before Edmonton mounted a furious comeback that brought it to 6-5 and they just simply ran out of time by the by the buzzer and so the end result of that game was Calgary fans got to celebrate a win and uh, at least, you know, not avoid the uh, uh, the ignominious sweep. Uh, but the way the game ended left little doubt as to what was in store for uh, uh, the short remaining future of the series. And uh, after the Oilers' six-game winning streak in the playoffs was snapped, the Battle of Alberta shifted back to Edmonton for Game 5, and for the second time in the series, the Oilers beat the Flames by eight goals as they won the game (laughs) 9-1 and the series 4-1. Bruce, watching the Oilers knock off their provincial rivals and claim the Smythe Division title on home ice had to have been one of your most satisfying victories as an Oilers fan at the time. Oh, well, again, I was watching from Rankin Inlet, so in a sense, it didn't matter which <laughs> barn the game was played in. But seeing the Oilers smoke Calgary by eight is, uh, you know, a pleasurable experience for sure. <laughs> and to have it happen twice in very short order like that, uh, all the more so. This game, what, frankly, was much less memorable than the 10-2 game with other shorthanded goals and, and, you know, Gretzky absolutely dancing at the height of his powers in uh, in Calgary. Whereas in in this game they just kind of overwhelmed them in Calgary. We knew they were done, and they you know they just really gave up the ghost as uh, 
Uh, I mean, they had Calgary had 40 shots on net, and Edmonton had 42. It wasn't exactly a uh, defensive struggle, but one goalie was making saves, and the other goalie was facing Wayne Gretzky. And eight different <laughs> Oilers players had multi-point games. Ah, uh, yeah, there you go. Let's see. Yeah, we had yeah, Coffee and Gretzky was three. Huddy, Hughes, Hunter, Curry, Lindstrom, and Lowe with two each. Not bad. Not bad. <laughs> Yeah, and uh, and Team effort. We, exactly. And when you look at the the score sheet, I mean, the Oilers were only up two nothing after the first period, but that five goal second period really put things in a way. And I'm I'm guessing yeah. as both teams were coming out for the third period, the the Flames side probably just wanted to get out of there. They wanted to get a goal and go home. Yeah, they got the one goal. They got the one to break the shutout. Kept the score down to nine one. You know, it's all good <laughs> for sure. And the following spring, there was a rematch of the Battle of Alberta in the 1984 Smythe Division Final. And although the Oilers were the defending Campbell Conference champions and had just posted a franchise record 119 points in the regular season, did you expect the Flames to be a tougher out for the Oilers than the prior year? I did. I did. I thought the Flames were a tougher team. I mean, the Oilers won... With 119 points and Calgary had 89, I think it was. So, you know, there was a big gap. But Calgary showed, uh, they showed some moxie in some of the games. And they they clearly were starting to gear up their team to specifically compete with the Oilers. Because they knew if they couldn't beat the Oilers, they were never going to get anywhere. Because they had to play Edmonton first or second at best in the playoffs. And this year it was, you know, they finished second. So they got uh, an easier first round opponent. And then... uh, uh, they round, wound up uh, running into Edmonton in uh, second round, um, but I was expecting a, a little, little tougher show. I mean, Edmonton wasn't going to beat them by 35 goals to 13 again, <laughs> like they had in '83. And it turned out that Calgary spaced their goals in such a way that they won three one-goal games, including two in overtime in this series, to, to uh, stretch it out. And do you still have that goal difference off the top of your head? Uh, 35 to 13, sure do. That's that's pretty impressive. 35, yeah. I mean, it was a five-game series and was a record for goals scored by a team in a series of any length. Yeah. So. <laughs> I mean, when like, as I mentioned before, when you beat a team by eight twice in the yeah, same well, series, yes. you probably got a good chance at the record. Yeah, yeah. No, they, uh, and even in the game they lost, they scored five, right? So right. it was, uh, it was a, uh, uh, a complete uh, one-sided affair. It was 83-84. Calgary put up a fight. And uh, Edmonton was hard-pressed to, uh, uh, you know, even games early in the series that they won were not easy. Were not easy wins. And we'll get into that right now. In game one, the Flames scored first on the road, but the Oilers took control of the game from that point on. Yep. Yep, rolled to a 5-2 win uh, with uh, uh, scoring late in the first period to tie it up, and that was kind of the key there. And then uh, uh, they jumped up in front with in the second with a couple and then uh, put it away in the third with a clinching goal and then an empty netter at the end. So 5-2 was, well, it was closer than... than um, uh, the score would uh, indicate, on the other hand, shots on goal were 54-29 for Edmonton, which is a fairly rare thing. So they were they were really pounding uh, uh, 
uh, Rajan Lemelin and the Calgary Net, uh, who led in only four goals, which was a, a terrific night's work. But uh, Edmonton were, you know, they were on the night, certainly clearly the better team. And in game two, the Flames trailed by three in the second period before scoring four unanswered goals to take a 5-4 lead with one minute and 33 seconds remaining in the final frame. However, Gretzky scored with just 45 seconds left on the clock to send the game to overtime. Yeah, Calgary, they just kept coming. It was 4-1. They scored late in the second on a goal by the immortal Eddie Beers. And then... You know, Richard Crom scored, Kerry Wilson scored, Steve Bozick scored on the power play to put him ahead, the minute and a half to go in the third. These are not household names, but Calgary had a ton of these guys that, you know, were uh, were silent and not necessarily deadly, but, you know, pretty good hockey players that could hurt you. And the Oilers responded, pulling the goalie to score the tying goal and send Northlands into a frenzy. And I thought, yeah, we're going to come back and win this game. And I still remember that overtime. Calgary came out and uh, they were, uh, because it was the fourth period, they were attacking the far end. We, we we sat in the order's defensive end in the first and third periods. And they just, Calgary just came out and they just stormed the Bastille from the beginning of overtime. They scored at three minutes, 42. And as I recollect, the shots were seven to nothing. But what I more clearly recollect was the game was over and the, and the teams were going off the ice. And I looked out at the ice and the ice was all white and chopped up at the far end. And the ice in our end was completely, it's like the Zamboni had just cleaned it. Like they, they'd never, Oilers never even got over center in the overtime. Calgary just threw the kitchen sink at them and it worked. And it was just a very startling sort of ebbs and flows kind of game. And when Edmonton tied it, I thought they'd get the they'd get the upper hand back. But it was well, I imagine when Gretzky scored with in the final minute of the game, the yes. building probably erupted. Bedlam. But I mean, unfortunately, time, not the right result on that night. No. No. Uh, Calgary credit, they were by far the better team in overtime. They were just on it, and then Edmonton was on the back foot. Yeah. And uh, moving on to game three, I mean, it, it was another tight, close game. Uh, just like we said, uh, they they came back, uh, forced the game to overtime, lost, and then coming out in game three, this time the Oilers got one back on them, though, Bruce. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they tightened things up in that. This was in the Saddle Dome. And you got to remember back in these days, they, they are not, yeah, it was the Saddle Dome. They, they, they would start playoff series with... Uh, Back-to-back games in one building, one day off, then back-to-back games in the other building. So it was like four and five days. And same for both teams, so fair in that respect. But the hockey sometimes got a little bit ragged. Uh, But in this game, uh, just three to two, so a very low-scoring game by uh, standards of these two teams. And it was uh, Paul Coffey that scored a couple. Here, I'm just looking at the penalty. uh, Summary again, Dave Semenko fighting, charging, Jim Paplinski roughing, Don Jackson roughing. There they go again. Charlie Bourgeois, that would be the guy Semenko fought. And there was another coffee and Risebrow fought. McClelland and Bourgeois again, they fought. You know, that's a typical go back to Calgary and be prepared to uh, to drop the gloves. Uh, 
But uh, in the end, it was uh, one of my favorite players, uh, Yaroslav Pozar, who netted the game winner uh, set up by line mates Curry and Gretzky. Uh, that staked the orders to a 3-1 lead, and then uh, Lanny McDonald scored to cut the margin, but Calgary just couldn't close from there, and Edmonton hung on and uh, won a 3-2 won a uh, uh, victory. Yeah, just another one of those games. I'm, I'm looking at it right now. 70 combined penalty minutes, uh, three fights in the game. Uh, it's like you said, it always just seemed to boil over as soon as they got back uh, down south. Yeah, and 35 saves for Grant Fuhr was a big part of that one as well. Yeah, and uh, going, uh, or sorry, going into uh, game four, uh it was Dave Hunter who recorded his first uh, career playoff multi-goal game, and Mark Messier who scored the game-winning goal with nine seconds or just nine seconds into the third period to lift the Oilers to a 5-3 road win and a 3-1 series lead. Uh, Bruce Messier's goal would have to be one of the fastest, if not the fastest, goal to start a period in Oilers history. Uh, do you recall anything about it? How was it scored? And do you actually know offhand if it is the record? Uh, well, it may well be the playoff record. Uh, the regular season record for uh, fastest was eight seconds held by one Wayne Gretzky. Um, that just was broke a couple of years ago. I think. Yeah, and so, and, yeah, it just recently got tied. Did it get tied? I think I, it got No, I, I think... Um, Who the heck the, was the, it the, now? Leon Dreisaitl's German buddy uh, who came in for a year. Toby Reeder? No, no. Uh, oh, oh, uh, Kubel. Oh, uh, no. Uh, Dominic Cahoon. Yes. Cahoon. He he broke it in the, the one. Of, I think the second pandemic shortened season, I believe. Uh huh. Yeah. Well, there you go. I remember the 1980s better than I remember the 2020s, Eric, and that's a sad fact. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, great to see a guy like Dave Hunter uh, have a two-goal game. I don't believe he had too many of those, especially in the playoffs and. Uh, for Messier to come through in the clutch, like I said, just right off the third period to get the goal that held up as the the eventual game winner. Yeah, well, uh, Hunter opened and closed the scoring with the latter being an empty net goal. Uh, but this was game, it was somewhat similar to game three in that, you know, it was a hard-fought back-and-forth game. Oilers opened a two-goal lead early in the third, and again, Lanny McDonald scored to cut it to one. And, you know, sort of the whole third period was was played with Edmonton hanging on to a one-goal lead. So it was tense. Uh, and this time, at least, I got the empty netter to make the last 30 seconds uh, a little more breathable. But it was, you know, it was a hard-fought win. And when they, when they won, you know, both games three and four in Calgary to go up 3-1, it seemed then that the, they'd be home and cooled out. But... Uh, yeah, and, and just like the previous, <laughs> just like the previous spring, the Oilers returned home for Game Five against the Flames, looking to wrap up the series. However, the Flames went up four-one early in the second period and survived a late charge by the Oilers to keep the series alive. Uh, Bruce, the game wasn't even at the halfway point when Grant uh, Fuhrer was pulled in favor of Andy Moog. Do you think that switch had more to do with Sather just waking up his team more than anything else? see if I got it right here. So Fuhr stopped. He allowed all the goals in this game. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. Uh, 
Well, when you're when you're losing five two and your goalie is you know stopped five out of nineteen after two valiant efforts in Calgary, he just didn't have it that night. Yeah. And and Mo came in. Of course, Calgary was a little bit more defensive with what we nowadays would call score effects. They're the team with the lead, meaning they don't have to score. They just they're just sitting back they, on it. They now. need to to defend and put their you know put their uh, uh, efforts there, and then maybe you're going to get stuff on the counterattack. But in this case, the Oilers kept coming, but they could not uh, uh, they could not ever uh, uh, close the. Uh, the gap, and this was a rare pointless game from Wayne Gretzky, which uh, uh, I guess credit to Calgary for holding him off the sheet, but uh, he wasn't at his best in this particular game. Yeah. Uh, and in game six, it was it was a back and forth affair, and the Flames led four separate times, but the Oilers also evened the score four times as well, sending this one to overtime. And Bruce, just like in game two, the extra session didn't last long. And it didn't end well either. Uh, it was Lanny McDonald with his sixth goal, uh, and he he was uh, really smashing them in. He he opened scoring in this game, and uh, it was a uh, it was a weird kind of sloppy game, as I recall. There was a, each team scored a shorty. Uh, there was a, a you know a few power play goals. Not a lot going on at uh, at even strength. And McDonald, he just he took a shot, low shot coming in off the wing from sort of bottom of the circle, and I still don't know how it got in and through uh, Grant Fuhrer, but it did, and uh, uh, that was the decider in that game. And of course, the Corral was uh, sorry, the Saddledome was in Bedlam. As that happened, Lanny McDonald was a big hero in Calgary for a good reason, but he was a real big hero that night. And uh, Bruce, after watching the Oilers' 3-1 series lead evaporate, how nervous were you as you made your way to Northlands for Game 7 that year? I was nervous. Uh, the concern was that Edmonton had, you know, they got to the Stanley Cup Finals and lost the year before. They'd been, uh, 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 they bowed out of the playoffs in a, a shocking upset the year before that. And the general feeling was it's time, and the sort of the subtext by the media of the day, some of whom are still the media in these parts, uh, was that if somehow they were to lose that game to Calgary, that the team might be sort of, not ripped asunder, but uh, sort of significant changes made to the team. We didn't want that because, of course, we thought we had a pretty good team. And uh, the feeling was that... Uh, con- Contrary to the defense wins championships mantra then and now, that this team was such a massive offensive force that they could outscore uh, their mistakes, which is basically exactly what they did in game four or game seven, which they won seven to four. And this was a huge test for Edmonton. I I think this uh, series going seven was a blessing in disguise because Edmonton surviving this sort of pressure cooker winner-take-all, one-game showdown, and pulling it out in the fashion that they did uh, was uh, uh, a big push towards them being able to uh, deliver in the pressure cooker that was to occur in the Stanley Cup Finals later that spring. And this game, they started Andy Moog after Fjord started the first six game. They started Moog, and I 
Uh, I would have started him in game six. It's, it's almost identical situation to what happened in Boston Bruins this last spring when they stuck with Linus Olmark and in uh, game when they lost game five and six and then refused to put in the backup. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Anyway, they started Moog in game seven, and wouldn't you know, he gave up three goals on ten shots. I think three goals on eight shots. There you go. Edmonton was out shooting Calgary, and then Fuhr came in halfway through the second when Calgary tied it up. Uh, three three midway in the second, and Fuhr came in, and one of the first shots he allowed was a goal. And I still remember looking at that shot clock in disbelief because Edmonton was out shooting Calgary thirty to ten, and trailing four <laughs> three. <laughs> and you're thinking, boy, this you know we're, we're going to need a save or two to make this happen, and. As good as the game start was, where the Oilers scored two goals in the, in the first ten minutes, that um, uh, you know things have gone sideways in a hurry, and then Edmonton just took over the back half of the second period, and uh, they pounded home three goals, and then a fourth uh, in the first minute of the third to uh, uh, to take the seven four lead. That they then just they just checked the crap out of Calgary the whole rest of the way and and uh, you, you know they really bore down and played the kind of two-way hockey that they were going to need to to play and it was uh, um, uh, Anderson, Linsman, Curry and ultimately Hughes who scored those goals and the Anderson goal I saw just the other day I don't know why they were showing uh, something to do with uh, with um, Anderson or Gretzky of, of Wayne that uh, was just a break-in at the blue line that was almost offside and he had to hold the puck outside the line while somebody cleared and then he had to he had to sort of control the puck right along the blue line it was just one of these unbelievable stick handle in a phone booth and all of a sudden he slipped the pass through to Anderson who was just steaming in he bombed a slap shot home to tie the game and that was a that it was a huge relief like you know trailing on the scoreboard at any time is unsettling and when it's game seven all the more so and just just stabilizing the game at four to four but they they jumped right on top of that with another goal within a minute and then uh, uh, and just gradually seized control and it was uh, it was Edmonton's response to really being in a difficult situation that to me it set the stage this was a, this was a hugely important win and in, in uh uh, 1984, not just the obvious that well, if they lose, they're out, and that you know, but the 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 way that they responded within that game when things weren't going their way to just say, nope, not this time. We're just taking this game away from you, and we're winning it. And they basically won going away. Yeah, and uh, Bruce, you can tell me if I'm wrong, but I mean that second period had to have been the most stressful and ultimately yes. exhilarating period of yes, hockey for Oilers fans things. all season. <laughs> <laughs> it was all of those things. And I mean, Edmonton, Edmonton was the, was the uh, better team throughout the game. They just weren't getting the goals for the first part of it. And then they just raised the temperature on the flames up much more to, uh, to uh, assert dominance, frankly, in the, in the, uh, Final 30 minutes. Yeah. 
And, uh, of course, after knocking off the Flames in seven games, the Oilers went on to sweep the Minnesota Nor- uh, Minnesota North Stars in the Campbell Conference Final and then uh, ultimately beat the four-time defending Stanley Cup champion New York Islanders in five games to capture their first Stanley Cup in franchise history. So that spring had a, a very happy ending. And, of course, any doubts that uh, you were mentioning there about potentially making changes to the roster would have all obviously been washed away at that point. Yeah, yes, absolutely, and that, that ultimate triumph. But Edmonton only lost four games in their uh, Stanley Cup run that year, and three of them were in that one series to Calgary. Like, the Flames were the toughest team Edmonton played. I mean, the Islanders in theory were, but the Islanders were a little more beat up, and and, uh, and the Oilers were surging. But and, I'm sure if someone would have told you in March before mm-hmm. the playoffs started that the Flames would put up a tougher test than the Islanders would, I'm sure that that would have shocked you. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, the Islanders were, they were, they played f- four, of course, four cups in a row at that point. So four years in a row, they played four playoff series. And it was kind of a miracle that they got through the East. Uh, but by the time they did, they were playing their 20th playoff series in five years, having won 19 in a row before the Oilers finally took them out. So, when Edmonton beat them one nothing in the first game in New York, uh, that was a, that, that was a huge moment. And New York won the second game, but they came back by the rule of the day for three in Edmonton, and the Oilers uh, took them out in all in each of the games, uh, two of them being blowouts. And they, you know they just were able to raise their game to a level that even the wonderful New York Islanders. Uh, banged up as they were, just couldn't match. All right. After a two-year absence, the Oilers and Flames faced each other again in the 1986 Smythe Division Final. The Oilers were the two-time defending Stanley Cup champions and had just been crowned the first-ever President's Trophy winners in 1985-86, finishing with 119 points that season, 30 points ahead of the rival Flames. And after the Oilers fell behind 2-0 early on in Game 1, Dave Semenko pummeled Joel Otto in a fight and also received a game misconduct. But on the offensive side of things, Edmonton didn't have much going on that night, Bruce. Uh, no, they sure didn't. This was a, a turning point in the rivalry that uh, uh, Edmonton had owned Calgary and beat them for fun uh, in the regular season in between times. In 86, they were 85, 86. They were like 6 0 and 1 against Calgary. And they met up in the last week of the season in Calgary. And the Flames just pounded Edmonton 9 to 3. The rookie, Gary Suter, I think he had six points in that game. And everything went Calgary's way just before the playoffs. And it just seemed to change the Flames, frankly, uh, in terms of their level of confidence against the Oilers. And after both teams had made mincemeat of um, of their opponents in the uh, uh, first round series. Edmonton beat Vancouver by four goals three times in a row. Uh, they met up in round two and the as easy as the first round had been and the Oilers were two-time defending champions, they weren't prepared for the Calgary Blitzkrieg that uh, opened game one, the Flames got two goals. Uh, they scored in the second minute and again in the eighth minute. And uh, from there, they rolled to a 4-1 win. Edmonton got one goal late in the second period on the power play, 12 seconds left. It seemed to set the stage for the good third, and then Calgary came out and 
good old Joe Mullen, who uh, Cliff Fletcher had stolen uh, from St. Louis at the trade deadline, instantly scored in the first minute of the third to restore the two-goal lead, and they cruised 4-1. And it was an uninspiring and, and, frankly, very disappointing game, other than if you liked fighting, uh, you got to see all of Dave Semenko and uh, Marty McSorley and Kevin McClellan dropped the gloves in the same game. So this was one where the home team kind of lost their cool a little bit. And uh, uh, it uh, it was a pretty, uh, uh, it was a rugged affair, but uh, it was not, uh, uh, it was not the greatest hockey game. And despite the loss in game one, Wayne Gretzky broke Dennis Potvin's NHL record for most career playoff assists with 103. And then in game two, the Oilers found themselves playing from behind once again as the Flames took a 4-2 lead into the third period. But the Oilers stormed back in the final frame, setting up an exciting finish. Yeah, yeah, this was it was kind of the reverse of the Calgary overtime win in 84 in game two. Where this time it was the Oilers who trailed in uh, 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 by two goals in the third, and they they pumped home three in a row. They took a lead with with uh, three and a half minutes to play, and Calgary this time, uh, good old Joe Mullen scored to tie it up. Uh, not sure if the goalie was on the bench yet. This was 1840, so in those days they often waited till the last minute of play announcement to yank the stopper, and I, I can't recall for sure i do know obviously calgary was pressing down so it was they who sort of stemmed the tide with a uh a tying goal uh and already Oilers trying one nothing in the series you're thinking the worst you know but uh um the overtime was short-lived and edmonton uh um seized the moment with uh, glenn anderson scoring a uh overtime winner just a minute and four seconds into uh the extra frame to uh, send the Oilers uh, home. I remember one thing I remember about this overtime goal was after it was scored, the filthy Paul Baxter of Calgary just brutally cross-checked Paul Coffey to the ice. I mean, the game was over. He was mad, and he just took it out on the nearest Oilers that happened to be Coffey, and it was just not thing one done or really to be done about it. Uh, it was just a, a statement from Calgary that uh, even in defeat, they were going to be nasty about it. And uh, they had a particularly nasty defense crew that year with Paul Baxter, with uh, uh, Neil Sheehy, a player I especially hated, a uh, um, trash-talking, cheap-shotting D-man with a Harvard education, knew what he was doing. And they also had Gary, Gary Suter, who had a... Uh, it was just beginning his uh, uh, to establish his reputation as a uh, uh, pretty filthy guy with a stick. So that that was an easy Calgary team to hate, yeah. got to say. And losing, as they ultimately did in this series, left a very bitter taste, which frankly remains. <laughs> no doubt about it. I think uh, when you say Gary Suter's name, uh, for a lot of people from that era who would remember this, it was the 1991 Canada, Canada Cup incident Cup. between he and Gretzky is one that uh, uh, still stings to watch for anyone who's ever seen it. Yeah, he, he caused uh, Gretzky's back injury during an exhibition tournament, you know, and it was just a vicious uh, cross-check from behind into the boards. 
and uh, just filthy. He was also the guy who go, who uh, cross-checked Paul Correa in the face right before the after he Olympics. scored and uh, put him out for uh, a long period of time. Like, real dirty player. Anyway, a good player. Like, you know, he's a skilled player, but uh, an easy player to detest. <laughs> No doubt about that. And in game three down in Calgary, the Flames opened the scoring for the third straight contest and never trailed all night as they picked up another close 3-2 win at the Saddledome and took a 2-1 series lead. Uh, Bruce, did the Flames implement any special defensive tactics to go up against the high-flying Oilers that year? And if so, did Glenn Sather do anything or make any adjustments to counteract the Flames' defensive schemes? Uh, He did, and they didn't work. Uh, and yes, uh, this was Badger Bob's uh, uh, seven-point plan to uh, uh, beating the Oilers. And, uh, of course, Cliff Fletcher had instituted the first point in the plan the previous summer when he somehow convinced the NHL that four versus four was uh, not exciting hockey to watch. And uh, <laughs> therefore, we better get rid of it so we could just go five on five all the time. I'm still bitter about that, too, because it was such a such a regressive rule change. You think about how many more goals a team yeah. like the Oilers would have scored had those yeah. uh, offsetting minors, you know, not resulted well, in yeah, just five I mean, on five. Well, yeah, I mean, Calgary was free to goon it up without having, you know, fear of any kind of... Any extra open ice for yeah, Gretzky yeah, to yeah. work his magic. Yeah, so, and you know, for a few years thereafter, uh, especially when I was at a live game, uh, anytime there was a double minor called and the subsequent lines came out and it was still five on five, I would just look at the two teams and say, who's the, who's the fifth guy? Who's the guy that they put out there that wouldn't be out if it was four on four? And yeah. I, mean, uh, I mean, they might not put the same lines at all, of course, but it would be, you know, the defensive forward, the Dave Hunter for Edmonton or, you know, uh, the uh, Colin Patterson for Calgary, uh, the ice clogger. You know the 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 high forward on forward four. There's no high forward. You come down on one end and you break the puck back the other way, and it's uh, two guys back frequently. And when your guy breaking is Paul Coffey and he's right rushing with Wayne Gretzky and Yari Curry, or with Glenn Anderson, and, and there's a pretty good chance uh, the puck's going to end Messick. up in the other team's net. Good things are going to happen. So anyway, uh, Cliff Fletcher convinced the league to do away with that, the Edmonton Oilers rule. Uh, and uh, so well, there's the first that. Rule Bob, made Bob, Bob, Bob Johnson came up with a seven-point plan, and a key to it was to uh, clog up the uh, offensive right side for the Oilers. Uh, he noticed, well, he was well aware of the fact that four of Edmonton's big five were left shots, and that all of them, like to come off, roll in off of the right wing boards and cut into the middle. And his plan was to make that more difficult for them to do. And the lone Oilers lone right shot, Yari Curry, he sort of made his living sort of hanging out in the, the um, you know, he'd be the high forward in the best defensive position, but he would also be, you know, often, uh, uh, even as a right winger, set up on the left face-off circle in the offensive zone and take a feed from Gretzky, Coffey, coming from the right to the left. And in that series, Curry was basically uh, um, reduced to, uh, uh, you know, the guy who led the NHL playoffs in scoring in four, the two years before and the two years after, uh, scored just two goals in the playoffs. And I 
think just one in that series and he uh was a big part of the reason was the calgary game plan and sather's response to it i thought was frankly a mistake in that he broke up gretzky and curry and he put gretzky with or curry with messier and gretzky with anderson and i just didn't think that was as effective as just simply playing through and 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 eventually just, the oilers skill yeah. would have found their way through well, that's it's hindsight, but uh, well, yeah. and the, and at the time I thought when they switched him out in Game Six, I think it was, and I went, yeah, I don't like this. So, anyway, it's uh, Bob Johnson. His tactics won the series. I mean, credit where due. And we will get there in a minute. But first, in Game 4, Wayne Gretzky scored his seventh career playoff hat-trick and five points as the Oilers beat the Flames 7-4 and nodded up the series 2-2 on the road. Gretzky also equaled Maurice Richard's NHL record for most career playoff hat-tricks. Bruce, after putting up just four points in his first three games in the series, did you get the sense it was only a matter of time before Gretzky had a big night offensively? 100%. Like, it was... You know, before a playoff series started in those days, you'd think, well, there's going to be one of the games in the series at least where Gretzky's basically going to put up enough offense on his own or, you know, be in the middle of enough offense with, you know, with his line mates to uh, win a game on his own. Sure enough, he got five points and Calgary got four goals. Well, that's a recipe for success. And uh, he was... uh, 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 he, He... he was the uh that was the one game in this series where he did break through uh, and uh uh and dominate scored a sh- he set up a shorty by curry he scored a shorty himself to close out the scoring uh in the third period and he was you know classic gretzky dangerous in all game states got a you know a power play goal uh even strength goal and shorthanded goal. <laughs> not not a bad night for the great one. Uh, and in Game Five back in Edmonton, Gretzky netted his league-leading eighth goal of the playoffs to tie the game one-one in the second period. But that was the only time the Oilers were able to solve rookie netminder Mike Vernon on that night, as he held the Oilers to two or fewer goals for the third time in the series and backstopped the Flames to a four-one win on the road and a three-two series lead. Uh, Bruce, this is the first time the Oilers had been on the brink of elimination since Game 7 against the Flames two years earlier. Uh, But were you still confident that the Oilers' star snipers would be able to step up at this crucial point in the series? Uh, I was getting pretty damn nervous by this point, Eric. I mean, Calgary was playing well. They had a formula and they were, you know, they didn't have the speed of Edmonton. uh, But what they had was like, 100% 100% commitment uh, and like in the, the sort of short races to the puck there would be you know the Calgary guys would be going hard and battling hard and you know they there was just no easy battles to be won unlike 83 in particular or 84 to a lesser extent this Calgary team was you know they were just given her and uh, they were well prepared they were a good team they had a lot of good players on that team and they um they uh, 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 they were proving mighty hard to get through. I mean, the fact that, as you mentioned already, and it's going to happen again, all of the Calgary wins in this series, Edmonton scored two or one goal. And 
this one in game five, I just remember the hopeless feeling watching the clock ticking down in the third period, Calgary leading three to one, and it just didn't seem like the Oilers had any sort of answers for it. They were just just working the clock down, finally got an empty netter to put it away. But uh, uh, Calgary, as in game one in Edmonton, uh, just clearly the better team on the on the night. Uh, I'm still not convinced they were the better team on the series, which was basically dead even. But on this particular night, uh, they had they had it going on, and you know they just play the the uh, kitty bar on the door, and you know make it tough to enter the zone and and clog up the slot and don't give anything free around the net. And with the series shifting back to Calgary for Game 6, the Flames were looking to finally knock off the Oilers on home ice. And they started fast with two goals in the first six minutes of the game. Mm. But Bruce, the Oilers wouldn't go down without a fight in this game. No, they would not. And uh, the scoreboard ultimately said 5-2 to two Edmonton, but it was a very, very tight game. They uh, they fought back within that second period after Calgary went up 2 nothing halfway through the second. You know, it was... Five alarm time, uh, but they got goals from uh, S. Tikkanen, uh and then a shorty, another shorty uh, from Mark Messier to tie it up in the second, and then uh, in the third, uh, Glenn Anderson with another one of his standard huge clutch goals put them ahead, three-two, uh, and it was three-two right into the last half minute of the third before uh, Mike Krusheniski popped one into the empty net. And then just in the dying garbage time seconds that remained, Craig McTavish scored to uh, stretch it out to 5-2. But this was not like a blowout win by any stretch, like game four or game three, five, game four had been in Calgary. Edmonton won two of their three games in Calgary in this series, and Calgary won three of their four games in Edmonton. It was, a, it was not a home ice series at all. And back at home for Game 7, the Oilers were looking to advance to the Campbell Conference Final for the fourth consecutive year. Down by one in the second period, Jim Poplinski scored a goal to pad the Flames' lead on kind of a fluky long-range shot. But mm-hmm. as the Oilers had done all series, they responded when facing a deficit as Glenn Anderson and Mark Messier each scored to tie the game 2-2 after 40 minutes. And Bruce, uh, you can explain what happened after that. Yeah. Yeah, the the fluke by Poplinski doesn't get enough play. Everybody remembers the the one by Barazan, but Calgary actually got two flukes in this game. My recollection of the Poplinski goal was that Grant Fear made the save and the puck just popped way up in the air and somehow came down and I'd hit something and went in the net. And you're going, no, this is not... Because I made it 2-0. Uh, but as you mentioned, Anderson from Gretzky... Messier from Curry on the new lines uh, scored the uh, the goals that tied it up late in the second, and then in the third, well, what can I say? Um, Steve Smith playing uh, on his 23rd birthday, as many pointed out after the uh, fact, was uh, uh, ultimately ruled the goat in this game. Although uh, it was kind of a uh, just such a weird play where he came out beside his own net, saw Anderson on the what was for him the far boards on the right wing, passed it through his own goal crease where Grant Fear wasn't tight to the post and the puck hit the back of his leg and bounced into the net. 
and that gave Calgary the lead again at three to two, and uh, there the score remained. I also have a recollection of a play later. This was at the far end for me, so I didn't see it as well. Of Neil Sheehy doing something very similar and banking a puck in his own end that could have went in but didn't, and that was basically the difference. And I have to admit, Eric, that 37 years later, I have resisted every opportunity to watch a replay of that game. I just, I, I can't take it. To You've seen the goal on like at least yeah, that the goal. Play. You can't avoid seeing the goal. Right. The game you can, and I have avoided watching mm-hmm. it again. I just still leaves a bitter taste. Yeah, I mean, I, I wasn't born at the time, but uh, I can only imagine how crushing a de- of a defeat that oh, must have been for Oilers fans. Uh, Calgary? Oh. And that was, the, I mean, at that point, we had dreams of matching or beating Montreal's record of five cups in a row. And in right. fact, they won four out of five. That was the one they didn't get. And, you know, just on. Uh, but on balance, I mean, this the odd thing about this series, Calgary never trailed in the series. Never trailed in the series. Uh, they they won the first, third, fifth, and seventh games, and in all four of the games that they won, they never trailed within those games. They were tied up a couple times, uh, but never did Edmonton have a tie series and a lead in the game. The only games they led in were the games where they were trailing in the series and had to win that game just to tie it back up again. Of course, there was no game eight, so <laughs> and uh, it came to crashing to a to a sordid yeah. end. A, a tough break uh, for you know what like we said they, they tied the franchise record for points in the regular season yeah. Wayne Gretzky had his best offensive season in the NHL that year they, they just seemed destined to win their third straight cup but uh, and Bruce the Oilers have lost in the Stanley Cup final twice in franchise history in 1983 and 2006 but was game seven against the Flames in 1986 the most painful loss you have ever experienced as an Oilers fan yeah, the one, I mean, the one in Carolina certainly hurt pretty bad. You know, basically a 2-1 game in game seven. Uh, uh, but for me, that that's whole, the, the most painful. That but whole I mean, that, playoff run. But yeah, it, uh, I never felt worse after a game than April 30th, 1986. That, that was just devastating. Uh, uh and it, yeah, it was not a good time. <laughs> All right. Uh, the Battle of Alberta would heat up again, though, in the 1988 yes. Smythe Division Final. At that time, the Oilers were the reigning Stanley Cup champions after recapturing the Cup in 1987. However, the Flames won the President's Trophy in 1987-88, giving them home ice advantage in a playoff series against the Oilers for the first time. Bruce, even though Edmonton won back the cup in 1987, were Oilers fans still dying to get revenge for the last battle of Alberta in 86? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. (laughs) And the series started in Calgary and uh, would end in Edmonton. Um, But it was... It was a... It was a mission. This was the first year Edmonton didn't win first place in their division in seven years. This first year Wayne Gretzky didn't win the scoring title in eight years. Uh, and it was, uh, uh, and the Oilers were 
were tagged as the underdogs entering the series. And I remember thinking, well, it's nice being underdogs when you got like Wayne Gretzky, Ari Curry, uh, you know, Mark Messier, Ben Anderson, uh, newcomer Craig Simpson on your team, Estique, and then, you know, the Oilers' top six was absolutely phenomenal. And they needed to dial it up a little bit. And uh, they got to the point where the regular season was... You know, it was a tune-up as opposed to, uh, you know, we want to go all up out. And so their their offensive totals were down a bit. Calgary's were actually up. Calgary had some very good goal scorers of their own. They had, uh, you know, Hack and Lube and, and uh, uh, Mike Buller, Joe Noondyke was on that team. And so it was, uh, you know, it was expected to be a high-scoring series. But right from the get-go in game one, uh the Oilers were, uh, um, uh, it, it was a very intense game and it was a, you know, tight game, one to one. Let's get into that game right deep now. Deep into the third period. Yeah, I'm, I'm doing just that. Yeah. <laughs> and it was one to one deep into the third period in, in Calgary uh, when uh, Yari Curry scored, set up by Essa Tikkanen to put the Oilers ahead. And then three minutes later, uh, Wayne Gretzky scored from Curry and Tikkanen to make it three to one. And just like there's still a few minutes left in the game, but when Gretzky scored, there was a, a number of large number of Calgary fans that just couldn't handle it, and they just got up and left. And, and I still remember Rod Phillips crowing about how Gretzky. They had the what they called the sea of red in Calgary with all the yeah. fans wearing red. And when, the, when Gretzky scored that goal, and Rod Phillips was chortling, Gretzky just parted the Red Sea. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good line. <laughs> He'd do it again in game two as well. But uh, yeah. game one was a 3-1 win, and it was uh, just standard uh, Edmonton-Calgary, you know, a bunch of penalties in each period, uh, and just hard, hard fought, lots of hitting, lots of animosity, you know, hockey. Battle of Alberta. And, you know, aside from, you know, Gretzky getting that insurance marker on the, the breakaway from center ice in and uh, Curry having another multi-point game, one fact that I was interested to find out from that game is that the Oilers actually went eight for nine on the penalty kill. Mm-hmm. And, you know, for, for a team like the Oilers that was obviously such an offensive juggernaut during the 1980s, uh, would you call that one of their best defensive efforts in the playoffs during their glory years? Well, I'll default to the one nothing win over New York and uh, Islanders in that would probably uh, game be at the one top. in '84. Uh, but yeah, the Oilers had the capacity to to dial up the defensive game when they really needed it, and typically on the road. You know, there was a a huge three one win in Philadelphia in the '85. Uh, Why do you think that finals. was on the road always? Uh, they like to put on a show at home, okay. you know, and, and on the road they they sometimes just you know just just stick to business, business and get the yeah. job done. And especially because Cal- all this all this talk about, you know, all Calgary's goal scorers and that. Well, Brad McCrimmon scored for the late Sarge. Brad McCrimmon scored for Calgary, not exactly a goal scorer. And Edmonton responded with goals by Mark Messier, Yari Curry, and Wayne Gretzky. And I think statements were being made at <laughs> both ends <laughs> of the ice there in, uh, in that 3-1 uh, game one uh, victory. 
Yeah. And in game two, the Oilers trailed 4-3 with just over four minutes to play in the third period before Yari Curry deked through two opponents and fired home a slap shot off the rush, sending the game to overtime and setting the stage for one of the most famous goals in Oilers history. Yeah, this was a game. Edmonton trailed 2-0, 3-1, 4-3. Uh, they got uh Goals from uh, Messier, Charlie Huddy, who we talked about earlier, uh, uh, Gretzky tied at 3-3, Curry tied at 4-4, and uh, the game went into uh, uh, into OT, and uh, uh, it, it uh, was back and forth. Messier took a tripping penalty. Uh, just before the six-minute mark of overtime, and it was uh, white knuckle time as the potent Calgary power play took to the ice with Al McGuinness and um, uh, uh, Gary Souter on the points uh, and the various guys I mentioned earlier up front in uh, in the form of uh, Mike Bullard, Hack and Lube, Joe Mullen, Lanny McDonald, um, and um, they had John Tonelli by this point, and uh, they really were a, a potent force. Um, but um, near the end of the power play, the, there was a the puck came into Edmonton's end, and and uh, uh, bounced over to Yari Curry, and Curry picked the puck up, and basically w- with one touch, he just bumped a perfectly weighted pass off the off the wall to not just clear the zone, but put the puck right in the track of Gretzky, who was coming up the left side of the ice uh, on the penalty kill, and uh, where he. They had such a hurt on Calgary, specifically shorthanded, the whole time of the, that he was involved in this rivalry. And this was, in fact, his last game as an Oiler in Calgary. And he would end it in uh, uh, the greatest possible fashion by taking that puck, steaming up the wing, and uh, hammering a perfect slap shot, basically through the crook of uh, Mike Vernon's elbow and up under the crossbar. And down to send the Oilers home with a 5-4 win and a 2 nothing series lead. Uh, Bruce, Wayne Gretzky scored 664 goals combined in the regular season and playoffs in an Oilers uniform. In your opinion, where does his overtime winner in Game 2 against the Flames rank among his most memorable goals with the Edmonton Oilers? Goals? Yeah. Uh, I'd have to think pretty much number one. You know, it was uh, even uh, ahead of 50 and 39. Well, the 50th and 39 was, a, you know, that was a big goal. It was a big game on a five goal night, empty net goal to, to, to hit the record. But in terms of meaningful uh, goals, this, you know, scoring in overtime shorthanded against the first place President's Trophy winning Flames uh, to, you know, it, it was sort of the. Uh, uh, the feature moment of what was to become a four-game sweep. Uh, this is the moment people remember and with reason. And it was uh, not just the um, uh, 
what the goal meant, but the you know the way it was scored with him streaking down the ice and just bombing a perfect slap shot under the crossbar, you know, it's it's just such a dramatic end. I I still have a this was the weird year where they had both networks covering the games, and uh, so you had CBC and CTV, and they were both both. Uh, both showing it, and only one of the channel the re- the replays are available on YouTube. Don't, YouTube don't show this, but the TV at the time did. And Gretzky, after he scored and after the team celebrated, and they were going off the ice, and there was a kid behind the Oilers bench with a blue paint on his face. Oilers fan, he would he'd literally yelled himself hoarse. They had a microphone right there, and you could did barely Gretzky hand him a kid. stick. And Gretzky stopped and handed the stick to the kid over the glass. And one of the channels switched away to show the replay, but the other channel showed the the fullness of the exchange. And what I remember is the Gretzky stick with the baby powder. He used to sprinkle his stick with baby powder so he could have a smooth touch. The puck wouldn't get jammed up in his tape or anything. And you could see the mark on the stick where he'd shot the puck. There was a puck-sized dark mark in the baby powder where he slapped it, handed the stick to this kid, and the kid was just, oh, oh, and he was behind the bench, <laughs> you could barely, and he was absolutely thrilled around belief, and why wouldn't he be? His hero had just scored to beat the dastardly flame, flames and given him the game-winning stick, right? It wasn't just any stick, I mean, uh, and it was, that was quite the moment. Unbelievable. Uh, I mean, I'm sure that kid today, who would probably be in his 40s, uh, I'm sure we'll still remember that and tell that story. Yeah, somewhere I somewhere along the way, I talked to somebody who knew that kid on Twitter, oh, yeah? like years later, and said, yeah, I, that kid was my neighbor or some darn thing. Anyway, it was, uh, it, it did come up as a, you know, in the sort of personal sense of someone who actually knew the, knew the guy and indeed treasured the stick. Oh, un- <laughs> undoubtedly. Yeah. And uh, and after Gretzky scored the overtime winner, head coach Glenn Sather turned around and gave the Flames fans at the Saddle Dome a special salute, didn't he, Bruce? He did. He (laughs) did. Yeah. Yeah. There were some shenanigans going on behind the bench, but uh, throughout. But Sather was, you know, he was known for. Uh, for being a bit of an irascible character behind the bench. He'd get into it with the fans from time to time, but uh, he he did a double fist pump. He did one towards the ice, and then he turned around and gave a fist pump, not with the finger, but it could have had a finger. It was sort of the same kind of upward thrusting, you know, just a fist pump. We'll call it a fist pump. But it had it had a little juice in it. And, <laughs> <laughs> and Bruce, I, I think you told this story on a previous podcast you and I did together, but didn't Sather say something in his post-game availability uh, with the, to the media about you might as well take the ice out because there won't be any more yes. hockey? He did say just that to the crew after the game, to the ice crew. There was... And said just exactly as you as you just put it. You might as well take the ice out. You're we're not coming back. <laughs> and you love to hear that. Uh, well, they got to back it up, but they did. Oh, and, uh, <laughs> and and I'm sure like the way that 
that series ended, uh, you know, definitely uh, erased some of the demons, at least uh, from 86. And we'll, we'll move on to game three now. And uh, after taking both games on the road to open the series, Yari Curry extended his goal streak to five games and Mark Messier notched three assists to lift the Oilers to a 4-2 win at Northlands Coliseum and a 3-0 stranglehold in the series. But what many fans will remember most about this game was Marty McSorley viciously spearing Mike Bullard in the gut. Uh, Bruce, what sort of an impact did that incident have on the rest of the game and the rest of the series for that matter? Well, it wasn't good. Uh, This was the one McSorley had taken a, a hard hit along the boards and he claimed that he himself had sort of taken a, a blow to the head and just kind of lost 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 his mind uh, in the literal sense for a period of time. Anyway, the Oilers had just scored to uh, to take the lead, the penalty I noticed at the same time as the goal, 8.54 of the second, where Charlie Huddy scored to put give the Oilers the lead. This after Steve Smith, uh, himself seeking vengeance against the Flames, had scored the tying goal. Anyway, uh, McSorley, uh, McSorley gave... Uh, um, Bullard, the business end of his stick, and and uh, Bullard went down like shot, and I think carried off on a stretcher, if I recall. And uh, he uh, uh, and it certainly added a uh, an extra nasty edge to uh, what was already a, a fairly vicious, uh, well, rivalry. And he uh, uh, not uh, not Marty's greatest moment right uh, this was my this is the rivalry i can't remember if this was the game uh might have been where uh um doug risebrow got a hold of uh um McSorley's sweater I, I think this was the game where it somehow they've been a brawl or something got a hold of his sweater in the penalty box and just shredded it with his skates in the penalty box <laughs> Yeah, these guys did not like one another. Yeah, I <laughs> I can uh, imagine just from the stories you hear about, uh, you'd hear things like there would be charity events in the summer that the Flames and Oilers would be involved in, and they couldn't even sit in the same side of the room at like a yes. golf course dinner because the hatred mm-hmm. was that intense. Yeah, yeah, that's... Uh, and years later, they got over it, but it was quite a few years after all the main combatants had retired that they could sort of get together for an old-timers game and have a beer together after, you know. And actually, that's one thing that I'm disappointed about for the Heritage Classic this weekend is that we won't be getting an alumni game. And I don't think they really gave a solid explanation why. But, I mean, for me, thinking back to that original Heritage Classic in 2003, I was 14 years old at the time. So because I was born five months after the Gretzky trade, that was the first time that I had ever got to see the glory days Oilers all together on the ice. And even though they were all retired by that point, except for Mark Messier, (laughs) it was, uh, it was still such a special moment for me to see the Oilers all time greats back on the ice. And um, I'm sure they would have went with a younger group of alumni if they would have had one this year, but I'm, I'm disappointed. They decided not to do that. I would have liked to have seen the alumni of the 06 Oilers play the 04 Flames. Yeah, you know, it's I think the core that would have been a of the great idea. teams that went to Game Seven of the Stanley Cup Finals in consecutive seasons, <laughs> with of course the lockout having occurred in between that completely ended the 04 05 season before it began. 
but two years and two seasons in a row, the uh, Alberta teams went to Game Seven of the Stanley Cup Finals, and they both were good teams. Like that, yeah. that would be a, I mean, it would be unreasonable to expect, you know, um, 62-year-old Wayne Gretzky or Mark Messier to play in this game, but. Uh, those guys would all be in their 40s, and it would have been all right. But uh, anyway, I guess there was no appetite for it. Well, I mean, I, I from the fans I've talked to, I, I know that a lot of people wanted to see it. So, and well, it's, well, there was appetite for it in the fan base. Yeah, though. but not well, for, for the organization. Yeah. yeah. But your idea of uh, – I actually had a guest on the, the podcast a while back when we were still discussing the possibility of this game – and basically, he said the same thing. The 04 Flames versus the 06 Oilers sounds like a, a great idea for an alumni game. And I said to him, I'm sure it would start off as a friendly game. But if it was <laughs> if it was if it was tied 3-3 in the second period, I feel like a little more competitive edge would start oh, to yeah. come out at that point. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And uh, just going back to that series in 88 now, in game mm-hmm. four... Six different Oilers skaters scored as Edmonton won the game 6-4 to four and swept the Flames 4 nothing. Bruce, the Oilers just had too much firepower and from too many of the world's best players for the Flames to handle in this series, didn't they? Uh, well, yeah, they did. I mean, and you just have to look at the goal scorers for Edmonton. Mark Messier, Craig Simpson, Wayne Gretzky, Estekinen. Uh, Dave Hannon, there's the one guy from the bottom of the lineup scored from Anderson and Messier, mind. And then Glenn Anderson himself scoring the 6-3 goal that turned out to be pretty important when Calgary uh, uh, got a late one and uh, uh, got multiple power plays down the stretch of this game. So uh, they called Grant Fear. I still remember how this game ended. It was 6-4. to four. Seemed comfortable enough. They called Grant Fear for a stick measurement and won the measure. So he got a legal stick penalty with two minutes to go. And then Steve Smith took a slashing penalty on the on the penalty kill. And it was so Oilers had two men in the box and Calgary pulled the goalie and they had a six on three for the last 61 seconds of the series. Six on three. You almost never see it. No, and even though the Oilers were up 3 nothing in the series, I'm sure you thought, oh, "Oh, we don't want to see this go to overtime. Yeah, no, we did not want to see it go to overtime. And a minute and one is a long time for three against six. And I still remember the the two with Smith in the penalty box, uh, the two defensemen Edmonton relied on in that situation were none other than Randy Gregg and Charlie Huddy that they put out, and the forwards, I think they used probably both Messier and McTavish. Um, but the, the def- I sat behind the order's defensive uh, net nervously and just watching those guys standing tall. And after they cleared the zone, I think the second time, there was 20 seconds left, and you're sort of finally going, well, I don't think they can you know, sort of mathematically do it anymore. But that was, uh, I was a pucker up uh, <laughs> uh, sequence of uh, that end of that series, even though, you know, the, the score didn't change from 6-4 and they somehow managed to see it out, but not without some nervous, uh, at least possibilities. And, and the penalty kill was sensational. Yeah. 
And uh, the Oilers would go on to win their fourth Stanley Cup in five years in 1988. It was also the last for Wayne Gretzky with the Oilers Mm -hmm. as he was traded to the Los Angeles Kings that summer. And three years later, the Battle of Alberta would be renewed in the 1991 Smite Division semifinal in what was also a matchup of the past two Stanley Cup winning teams. And in Game 1, Al McInnes unloaded a heavy shot to put the Flames in front 1-0. But it was the only puck that got past Grant Fear on that night, Bruce. Yeah, this uh, this game is uh, stands out in memory for its viciousness. Uh, th- these two teams came out and they just made mincemeat of one another right from the start. Very, very heavy checking, lots of lots of hard uh, uh, stick work. And I'm just pulling up the uh, the game log now, but it was um, yeah first round of the series. This was uh, this was the first time that they didn't play in the in the uh, Smythe Division final. But uh, uh, L.A. Wayne Gretzky's L.A. Kings had won the division, and Edmonton were second, third, playing each other, and they had kind of a new cast of characters and that kind of shows up in the scoring summary from this game as and tied the score peter klima gave the orders the lead and then craig simpson clinched it in the third period and uh, you know that was sort of the, the new wave of oilers attackers and Antikinen and klima in particular were uh, great uh, clutch goal scorers in the playoffs in the in the uh, later part of the uh, Edmonton run, and of course they won their last cup by this time. But they still would, were going to go uh, win the Smythe Division for two more years before finally the uh, uh, yeah. midnight struck. And in Game 2, Mike Vernon turned aside 35 of 36 shots, including Glenn Anderson and Mark Messier on a pair of breakaways to tie the series at one apiece. Uh, Bruce, was that just one of those nights where you have to tip your hat to the opposing goalie? Uh, yeah, it was. I mean, Calgary got the lead this time, you know, and again, uh, uh, Calgary started the series at home and they were the favorite team. Uh, and it was basically there was a flurry of goals early in the second that made it three one, and it just stayed there and it just clock ticked down. So it was uh, not for lack of trying. I mean the Oilers, as you say, had 36 shots on net, but they just uh, could not solve uh, Mike Vernon. And of course by this time both Wayne Gretzky and Yari Curry uh, noted Calgary killers were uh, no longer with the team. Right. And in game three, the Flames had a 3-2 lead in the third period when uh, Anderson roofed a backhand shot on a breakaway to tie things up. And as the final seconds would tick down in regulation, the game appeared to be headed to overtime, although it didn't quite get there, Bruce. It did not get there. Another uh, new, uh, a recent hero, Joe Murphy of the famous Kid Line in 1990, uh, one of the... uh, uh, guys picked up in the in the uh, phenomenal trade for uh, Jimmy Carson uh, would score the game winner with just 14 seconds uh, to play in the game, uh, set up by Simpson and Messier. So you know the Oilers had their their guns on the ice and they uh, delivered in the uh, in the crunch just before uh, just before the end of regulation. I mean it might as well have been overtime by that point and. Uh, uh, a very, uh, very exciting uh, denouement. 
Now, were you still a season ticket holder at this time, or were you yes, just? Yes, I was. Okay. My season tickets. I started in 1977 when uh, the uh, Oilers had. Uh, Glenn say there was just um, moving from player coach to uh, um, behind the bench uh, suit coach, and uh, the first. Stanley Cup winning Euler arrived at the end in late October of 77 was Dave Semenko. And I kept my season tickets through the 92-93 season when the Oilers fell out of the playoffs and uh, uh, and were clearly on the downswing for mm-hmm. a while. And uh, it was uh, prices were going up, the quality of the games was going down, and uh, my employment situation had changed. So that was the end of it. Makes sense. Sort of Full time season ticket holder. I've, you know, I'm still <laughs> a mini pack holder to this day, but uh, not. Uh, I couldn't afford a season ticket at this well, point. I mean, the the quality of hockey that you saw between yes. for 16 years between 1977 and 1993, I think would rival just about any other hockey fan across North America. Yeah, I wouldn't trade it. I wouldn't trade it. I mean, the, you could probably find, in fact, you could find a more successful run for Montreal Canadiens if you kind of cherry pick the the uh, the interval. A little further back, yeah. Yeah, like if you went from 1955 to 1971 with uh, Montreal, you would get what uh, ten cups. Uh, not bad. Not bad. But, Although, but, I mean, for you to see it in a a 21 team league as opposed to a 16 yes. league, I think makes it even more impressive. And, and one other reason why I was still wouldn't trade what mm-hmm. you saw compared to those fans in Montreal is the number of scoring records that yes. you witnessed live. Um, I mean, just to have been in the building for, I mean, I'd give anything to have been in the building for one of Wayne Gretzky's uh, historic nights. And uh, you can't even probably probably take, uh, two hands or three hands to count all the ones that you saw live. So, yeah, it's a, it was a pretty yeah. great run by you. Yeah, I'm, some people say the Oilers are the greatest team of all time, and they've been recognized as that by mm-hmm. the NHL, the 84-85 version of the right. team. Uh, I think the, uh, that uh, some of the uh, championship teams of the Montreal Canadiens in the 1970s, because they were so great defensively as well as great offensive teams, um, uh, might rank a little bit ahead, but I would say this, the Edmonton Oilers of 1980s are the most exciting team in the history oh, of the game. Without a doubt. And I, I think you mentioned yeah. that on a previous episode that because the Habs were the full package, that's why right. the, you, you might consider them giving them the nod. But uh, it, I, I'm sure the reason the 85 Oilers were recognized is just because of how many players reached not only career marks, but all time great marks from Gretzky to Coffee down the line. And in the playoffs specifically, yeah. like that was the year Gretzky scored the 47 points, the year that uh, Curry got his 19 goals, that Coffee got uh, the records that still stand for goals, assists, and points <laughs> by a defenseman, and on and on. Unbelievable. You know, like all of their top guys were, were at the top of their game. Yeah. And in game four, the Flames took an early 2-0 lead on the road. However, the Oilers responded with five unanswered goals to seal a 5-2 come-from-behind victory at Northlands Coliseum and a 3-1 series lead. But late in the third period, things got ugly as multiple fights broke out, most notably one between Dave Brown and Jim Kite. Yeah, 
that was uh, that was nasty, and those were both nasty guys. Uh, the um, uh, Jim Kite, uh, he played for Winnipeg Jets for uh, a number of years before that. I still remember him taking down and nearly out Paul Coffey in the '85 playoffs with a diving slash of Coffey's ankle that uh, was uh, not clean at all. But the uh, the Kite uh, Brown fight was. Uh, uh, short and uh, well, if you like fighting, sweet for uh, oil fans. That uh, Brown definitely got the got the better of it. With uh, so I recall, uh, Kite wound up on his back, and uh, Brown started up the lawnmower and landed two or three more. You yeah. know, on the and, ice. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Some folks didn't like that, and uh, but didn't seem like the folks at uh, uh, Northlands Coliseum minded all that much in the moment. If a player landed three more clubbing blows to a player that he's on top of on the ice in today's league, what do you think the suspension for something like that would be? Uh, well, it certainly gets something. <laughs> uh, there's, I mean, the, li- the linesman may have put, might have played it different too. Although, I mean, yeah. if you want to get in between uh, Dave Brown and Jim Kite, you're a braver man than I. But uh, they, you know, they. They they might have intervened in a different fashion than they did. Uh, another way, I mean, sure, there'd probably be a suspension tacked on. But because I, I watched the video on YouTube earlier today, and Brown is on top of Kite and at, gets him with at least three shots while he's laying on yeah. the on the ice. So I mean, he he really finished him off. Yeah, yeah, it was. Uh, and Brown was a, a scary individual to say the least. Yeah. Probably not recognized enough as one of the Oilers' uh, greatest tough guys ever. Maybe that's just because he wasn't with the team as, as long as some of the other ones. Yeah, he had a fight with uh, Stu Grimson. Two fights with Stu Grimson in uh, uh, 89-90. And this was uh, it was kind of the turning point of the season for the Oilers when they won the 90 Cup. And they never played Calgary in the playoffs that year. But they played Calgary back to back, and uh, uh, they played a Friday, Sunday, and the Friday game was here, and they, they, uh, the two dropped the gloves, and Grimson did well, and I think he actually won the fight. There was when the teams met up again on Sunday, there was no question there would be a rematch, and uh, it happened about five minutes into the game, and and Brown just laid a very decisive um, whipping on uh, uh, on Grimson. And uh, I put him out for a while, as I recall. And uh, the artist came back and won in overtime on a goal by Marty Jelena. Future flame, but current Oiler Marty Jelena scored. And it was a uh, a turning point game. Like the artist kind of spinning their wheels that 89-90 season. Of course, they lost out in the first round the previous year. Right. They lost Gretzky, and it just, you know, it wasn't sure where they were going. But that uh, uh, that game early in 1990 was a, a turning point. And the Brown fight and the Jelena goal both were kind of kind of uh, uh, moments that. And uh, uh, 
Jelena, a member of the kid line that helped the Oilers win that cup in 1990. Mm -hmm. Uh, Heading back to Calgary for Game 5, the Oilers look to close things out on the road, but with the game tied at 2 in the second period, the Flames scored two goals in under a minute to take a 4-2 lead, and they wouldn't look back from there, Bruce. Yeah, yeah, Oilers made it close. Uh, it was four three sort of uh, for the entire third period until uh, Calgary got an empty net goal with one second left. But it just seemed like the Oilers, you know, that Calgary was playing for their lives, and the Oilers were kind of the thought was, well, we'll get them back at home like we did in games three and four. But uh, as uh, uh, the script had it, it didn't quite work out that way, but. Uh, uh, Calgary, my recollection of Game 5 is basically the Oilers didn't play all that well, and Calgary won it uh, fair and square. Yep. And uh, in Game 6 back in Edmonton, it proved to be a goaltender's duel as Grant, Fear, and Mike Vernon each were beaten just once in regulation, but unfortunately, overtime didn't end the way Oilers fans hoped that night. No, it did not end the way Oilers fans liked. It ended in fairly awful fashion on a brutal Mark Messier turnover in the neutral zone that sent Theo Fleury in alone for a breakaway and he was able to slip one through Grant Fear and then do his famous um, antics on the ice where he was he did kind of the nail Yakupov thing yeah where he was sort of flipping and rolling and diving and even more um crazy of a celebration than I think Yakupov's was uh, yeah, it, it ridiculous. Was over, it was over bit. the top and it's still, they they still show this game as being at the moment of the series with somehow people forgetting who actually won the series. <laughs> Which we're going to uh, get to next. Yes, we are. But I mean, Flurry's <laughs> goal won game six, sure enough, and it tied the series, but it did not right. win the series. But anyways, it was uh, a dramatic moment, and it was just, uh, you know, as attending that game in person, it was the worst outcome because, you know, now we're going back to Calgary, and they won the last two straight, and uh, we're on the back foot. And uh, this from, uh, you know, a team of Edmonton two years earlier had blown a 3-1 series lead against L.A., uh and going out in the uh, in the first round and so it was uh uh it, it was a very uncomfortable feeling and watching flurry doing those and i was never a theo flurry fan no lots of people were but uh i was i just didn't I, like, uh, didn't I shared like that it. sentiment <laughs> <laughs> yeah and Back I'm certainly then, not one today. today. <laughs> I'll, tell you, I'll tell you that. Still, yeah, but, yeah. Uh, uh, anyways, like that that was. <laughs> I, I, you know, I admired him in a certain way. You know, being such a little guy and coming up the way, you know, the way he did. You know, right. he, he, his respect there in in the one sense, but uh, yeah. yeah, not not my favorite. We won't go down a, ther- a Theo Fleury rabbit hole uh, uh, today, but uh, right. <laughs> that's uh, that's for a different. Uh, topical podcast but Mm -hmm. anyway after fighting their way back from down 3-1 in the series the flames went ahead 3-0 early on in game seven at the saddle dome however essa tikkanen cut the deficit to two before the end of the opening frame and after starting the oilers comeback in the first period it seemed only fitting that tikkanen would be the game seven hero 
Yeah, he uh, he he came through in spades. Calgary came out hard. They got a couple power play goals. Theo Fleury scored his second goal of the series to put him up three nothing. And 16 minutes into the first, and at that moment, you think chances of Calgary, you know, if they did their their pro- win probability thing, they'd probably have Calgary at 90% by that point. Uh, anyway, uh, Tikkanen scored uh, just a minute or so later to cut the margin to three to one. And I think that was the one where he, he scored on a slap shot from basically the blue line or even a little outside the blue line, just rocket that that stunned Mike Vernon and the Calgary crowd and brought Edmonton back into the game. Uh, and they kept it coming on the, in the middle frame. Glenn Anderson, clutch goal scorer, scored another clutch goal from Essa Tikkanen. Uh, and Tikkanen himself scored the tying goal, 3-3 three to, three in the, to uh, halfway through the game. And all of a sudden, that entire 3 nothing lead has, has gone. Yeah. And... In the third, the Oilers got a goal from an unexpected source. Uh, Tony Semenov put him up uh, about five minutes into the third. And you think, here's the comeback's complete. They're going to win 4-3 uh, until uh, little or little used Ronnie Stern scored to tie, tie the game with two minutes left on an Al McGinnis shot that bounced off the backboards and favorably onto Stern's stick, and he was able to stuff it in before Grant Fuhr could get over there. So, again, Edmonton's had, you know, they're on the cusp, and it's been taken away, you know, and then uh, into overtime we go, and not uh, not fun, um, but definitely exciting. and. In the overtime period, they got um, uh, they played about seven minutes, and this the costly part was that Mark Messier suffered an, uh, a knee injury in the overtime period, which if they'd won in regulation, of course, wouldn't have happened. And that injury to Messier really, really uh, crimped his style in the following uh, series. But uh, uh, in the end, it was Esatikin and himself. Uh, scoring the hat-trick goal on a shot that uh, bounced in. Uh, he fired from outside and it caught the shin pad of uh, future oiler Frank Musile and over Mike Vernon's glove into the short side of the net. And just like that, it was over. And Tikkanen put on a real nice celebration. He mocked Theo Fleury a little bit in the process, <laughs> but for some reason they don't ever seem to want to show that one. Yeah. So, But uh, that one actually won the series. And it was a hat-trick uh, goal in overtime. It was a hat-trick goal. He's the only guy to have done it until two years ago when uh, Yoel Kivaranta, of all people, a very marginal uh, sort of fringe player for Dallas Stars, did it to Colorado in Game 7. Got his hat-trick goal in goal. overtime yeah. in Game 7. Yeah, a pretty uh, impressive feat to be the first. And I mean, after playing on a line with Wayne Gretzky and Yari Curry in their respective primes, who would have thought that Tikkanen's biggest goal with the Oilers would come after they both left town? Well, he kept them on coming. You know, he scored a lot of big goals in the playoffs in 90, 91, 92. He was a, was a phenomenal playoff producer. And, you know, and he wasn't a real big scorer in the regular season, but he sure seemed to come through in, uh, in key times in the, uh, uh, in the playoffs. And 
in uh, uh, I mean in '91 they they uh, after winning that game they went on to play LA Kings in the next round series, and four of the six games went to overtime with Oilers winning three of them and and. Uh, Tikkanen scored in double overtime. Klima scored in double overtime. McTavish scored in overtime. And these were all guys that sort of had had great records of producing in the clutch. Yeah. And there was, uh, I mean, that that series against the Kings was a dandy as well. But uh, winning Game Seven at Calgary in overtime, you know, <laughs> I only wish it was a little cleaner, nicer goal. You know, it wasn't quite the Gretzky slapper, but uh, it still counts. It went in the net and it counts. And That's I'm all looking that at hockey reference 32 years later and it still says Edmonton won that game, you know, so. That's what matters. (laughs) And, uh, you know, we'd have to wait another 31 years for the next playoff edition of the Battle of Alberta in the 2022 Western Conference second round. The Flames won the Pacific Division title with 111 points in 2021-22, while the Oilers finished second with 104. Bruce, I was alive for the 91 series, but I was only two years old. So this was the first playoff meeting between the Oilers and Flames that I actually watched. Uh, just as a hockey fan, how excited were you to see this rivalry renewed in the playoffs after more than three decades? I'm pretty thrilled. It was a long time. I mean, I looked it up at the at uh, at that time, and I, I don't have it fresh to mind. Um, but I think the the two teams almost never made the playoffs in the same year. In the intervening years, either Edmonton or Calgary was poor. At any well, the given Flames time. missed for seven straight years, yeah. and then the Oilers, after going to the final in 06, missed for the next 10 years, so there yeah. weren't a lot of opportunities. Yeah, and I mean, starting in, I mean, 90 from 92 to 96, Edmonton never made the playoffs, and Calgary was frequently a strong favorite, and they kept getting beat in overtime in their own building for a few years. Uh I remember when uh, Ray Whitney put him out uh, with the Sharks there one time, a uh, huge upset in the Game 7 overtime. But they, the two teams, uh, I'm not sure that 2022 wasn't the first time that both teams won a playoff series in the same year, and they wound up meeting each other in Round 2. Yeah, I guess it would be the first since 88, probably. Uh yeah, yeah, that they met in in in, uh, in because uh, in eighty nine and ninety they wouldn't have. So that's uh, right. That's true. And in game one, the Oilers fought back to reverse multiple four goal deficits, tying the game six six early in the third period. But that's as close as the Oilers would come to victory in the home opener, or sorry, the series opener, I should say, Bruce. Yeah, and an ignominious nine six loss. And this was after Calgary had beaten Edmonton 9-5 in a regular season game there a few weeks earlier. And it just seemed like the Oilers couldn't stop them. Like they, they, as you say, they fought back. They were down 6-2 and it was out of hand. And they got a couple from Zach Hyman. Leon Dreisaitl scored late in the second. Kyler Yamamoto early in the third. And they're rolling. But they just couldn't, couldn't keep it up. And, and, uh, uh, Rasmus Anderson, of all people's, could put Calgary back ahead, and uh, Matthew Kachuk scored the scored the clincher, and then the empty netter for the hat trick, and had the last laugh on the on a night that uh, well, it wasn't that funny. No, I, you know, nine nine to six. 
something. And we had... Um, they fell behind 3 nothing so yeah. early in the game, too. Yeah. I mean, just over halfway through the first period and thinking, oh, man, this is going to be a rough night. And then Mike Smith gets pulled. So, uh, mm-hmm. But, I mean, full credit to them for battling their way back. Yeah, only one power play goal in this game, but this was a weird one. Uh, McDavid had four points minus one. Dry settled three points minus two. And I mean, sure, the empty net goal would be in there uh, for certain. But um, still, you know, it was just the, the, the goals were coming thick and fast at both ends of the ice. And Edmonton's inability to, to keep the puck out of their own net uh, on top of Calgary having thumped Edmonton twice in um uh, in calgary uh in the latter part of the season uh and including that nine five game i mentioned earlier like they, they oilers gave up nine to calgary in consecutive games at the saddle dome if, if my recollection is right certainly in rapid succession yeah. and it just seemed like we just can't stop these guys and, I mean, Calgary had finished first. You know, they were the favorite. They were starting at home again, as they had in 91 and 88. Uh, but uh, they got the jump. And, and in, oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, I was just going to say, and, uh, and in game two, the Oilers fell behind 3-1 early in the second period. But Connor McDavid and Evan Bouchard answered with a pair of goals to even the score after 40 minutes. And in the final frame, the Oilers capitalized on a miscue to take their first lead in the series, Bruce. Yeah, this was the turning point of the series in every way. Uh, Calgary had Calgary had taken this, uh, uh, well, they scored two quick goals again. It was 2 nothing six minutes into the game, right? I mean, Michael Stone, Brett Ritchie scoring for Pete's sake. And you're thinking, are we ever going to, you know, ever going to get a save? Uh, you know, Mike Smith is, uh, you know, he's... Well, he and Koskinen both had troubles in game one, and then he had a slow start to game two. Uh, but the funny thing about this game, Calgary made it 3-1, Edmonton bounced back, McDavid scored immediately to make it 3-2, and it stayed 3-2 for a while, but Edmonton just started to take over. And they won this game on merit, and they came all the way back to win it 5-3. Um, and they they won it because they were the better team, and they, they, they took control of the the game and the series uh midway through uh midway through game two after you know after giving up what is it 12 goals in the first uh four periods in a little bit <laughs> and they you know they started winning more puck battles they started you know playing tighter defensively and really bringing it to calgary uh but it was a shorthanded goal by Zach, I guess another shorty by the Oilers against the Flames that uh, turned out to be the game winner in the uh, in the third period. And then uh, Dreisaitl followed up with a clincher assisted by none other than Mike Smith uh, to uh, uh, wrap it up at 5-3. to three. And it was one of those games, it was 5-3 and down the stretch, like just the way they were playing, I was confident. You know, they are the better team. They are winning this game. And all of a sudden, I like their chances after sort of first 1.5 games of the series of being second second best. They uh, they just flipped, uh, flipped the script. Yeah, without, without a doubt. Uh, and then uh, after a scoreless opening frame in Game 3, Evander Kane enjoyed his best period of hockey as a member of the Edmonton Oilers in the second. Yeah, this was a fun one for uh, for Edmonton. Uh, 
It was uh, the first period was quiet, and Hyman opened scoring in the first minute of the second, and then Kane, 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 his eighth, ninth, and tenth of the playoffs. And in this game, uh, Drysaddle had four assists, and McDavid had three. Yep. And they were both they were on the same line with Kane, and uh, Kane was just cleaning up. And uh, yours suddenly after uh, in a 12-minute span, they scored all four of their goals, and uh, Calgary only got a late consolation goal to cut it to to four to one, break the shutout. But uh, Edmonton was by some margin again on this night the better of the uh, of the two teams. Yeah, Evander Kane, of course, scoring that natural hat-trick in exactly six minutes. It's also worth noting that Leon Dreisaitl matched the NHL record for most assists in a period with, in a playoff period with four, and Connor mm-hmm. McDavid became the first player in NHL history to record nine multi-point games within his team's first ten playoff games <laughs> in a year. So uh, not a not a bad start when you do something that Wayne Gretzky has never even done. Mm-hmm. Yeah, unreal, and they. Uh... They'd already um, survived, of course, a seven-game set with uh, with the Kings. So this was, in fact, already their tenth playoff game in just Game Three of the second round. Yep. But uh, they uh, scorers scored, and every the rest of the team, you know, looked after uh, after the defensive end, and uh, they uh, uh, can. Uh, oh, sorry. Kane was the was the goal scoring hero, but yeah. uh, his uh, his line mates were were doing the work, setting records <laughs> along the way. Um, and in Game Four, the Oilers jumped out to a three nothing lead in the first period, but the Flames stormed all the way back to tie the game three three, including one of the craziest goals I've ever oh. seen by Rasmus Anderson on Mike Smith. Bruce, what was going through your head when you saw that puck go in? And also, how relieved were you for all of oil country, and maybe especially Mike Smith, after how that game uh, was going in the in the third period? Yeah, it was a shorthanded goal by Rasmus Anderson, who will not be playing in this weekend's Heritage Classic because of some goonery in the recent past. Uh, but a uh, good player. And he was looked like he was just clearing the puck down the ice uh, on a just slap shot down the ice, and Smith claimed that he just lost the puck in the you know in the crowd, like it was a high uh, shot that kind of went up and dipped down into the top of the net from what 160 feet. It was from ridiculous how far line, like how far away he was. Yeah, and uh, uh, of course the uh, uh, the Mike Smith. Uh, Anti fan club were out in spades after after that one, uh, and you know, and with some justification. I mean, three two in the third period. You don't want your netminder sieving one in from the other end, but it happened, and the Oilers were somehow able to right the ship. And then uh, Ryan Nugent Hopkins turned out to be the goal scoring hero, popping home the the game winner with three and a half to to play to uh, put the orders up and then uh, empty netter uh, would ultimately make it 5-3. But this was a game that went from uh, a joy ride to a very tense and intense uh, um, nail-biter, uh, but ultimately the happy ending. 
And Bruce, continuing our trend of talking about the most memorable goals or most important goals in a Oilers player's career from Gretzky in 88 to Tekin in 91, uh, would you call that goal by Nuge in 2022 his most uh, impactful goal in the NHL? Uh, that's a good question, but I'm very probably right. Uh, I mean, he's been a good player for a long time, but, uh, uh, you know, he didn't play in a lot of playoff games for the first chunk of his career. And, uh, uh, he's, you know, known more as a playmaker than a goal scorer, but popping that one home was just an absolutely gigantic, uh, snipe for, uh, for the Nuge. And we're going to talk about, a, another goal that will probably be considered, uh, the most memorable goal of another player's career in a second here. In Game 5, both teams combined for seven goals in just over 11 minutes in the second period and were tied 4-4 after 40 minutes. Bruce, just to finish up tonight, take us through the controversial disallowed goal late in the third period and then the eventual overtime winner. Sure. Yeah, it was. Yeah, that second period was wild. It went from uh, uh, 2-0 Calgary to 3-2 Edmonton, and within 31 seconds of Edmonton going ahead, Calgary went ahead 4-3, and 40 seconds after that, Edmonton tied it again at 4-4, and then it just stayed 4-4 right through the third period. And for a brief moment, it looked like Calgary had scored to go ahead 5-4 on a goal off the skate. What's that guy's name again? You know it. Uh, Yeah, yeah, Blake, Blake Coleman. And it was uh, uh, such a strange play. And, and you know, that puck, uh, that puck would have gone in the net had Coleman simply left it alone. It was going in. He wanted to make sure it was going in. He just nudged it, really, yeah. with his skate. But the refs deemed, and I think correctly in the limited sense, that it was deliberate. He did nudge it into the net with his skate. And they they ruled it a kicking motion. Now, many in Calgary will tell you, well, he didn't really kick it. He just kind of, well, nudged it. <laughs> but <laughs> but he did use your skate forward, in a... In a, in a, in a forward uh, motion. <laughs> yeah, 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 and in a premeditated style, at least premeditated within the moment. I guess the NHL's... I want to help room. that puck over the goal line, you know, yeah. and he did, and Last he paid as a kid. Yeah. yeah, so... The call, I mean, it was a it was a dicey call, and it could have gone the other way, but uh, I thought it, it was going to. Yeah, you know, I was watching that game with my dad, and uh, I remember when they were reviewing it, he said, "This is going to count," and we were both very surprised, happily surprised when it didn't. Well, my my thought was, uh, we're just going to have to tie it up again. Yep. It turned out we didn't have to tie it up again. We just had to get the winner later. <laughs> and I'll let you uh, describe that one. Oh my goodness! Ah, so good. Uh, yeah, and this was uh, this was five minutes into the overtime frame, and uh, was just you know uh, again the game on a knife edge. But of course, this isn't Game Seven overtime like the Tekin is. Game Five, where Calgary's just trying to stay alive, and Edmonton alone has a chance to end the series. And in fact, it is Edmonton who do score and end the series as that reliable combination of Leon Dreisaitl and Connor McDavid connected. And let's bear in mind here that Dreisaitl had been limping around all series with uh, 
high ankle uh, sprain. With a high ankle sprain, suffered when uh, he was slew-footed down by uh, Mikey Anderson of LA Kings in the first round playoffs. So the whole series, and that's why the, McDavid and Dry Settle were playing together. Right. On the, on the one line was because uh, Dry was, you know, on the limp. And uh, they didn't want him skating the full 200 feet that the centers do, but they wanted to keep him out there uh, playing and contributing. And he changed his game. It was, it was something to see. Uh, I mean, he's always been a great passer, but he's also always been a great sniper. And, uh, uh, you know, a three-time now 50-goal scorer. And uh, he, uh, uh, but in this series, he turned completely into a playmaker, uh, uh, Leon did. Anyway, the puck came along the uh, the sidewall in the overtime, and he was uh, in a one-on-one battle. The guy, was it Rasmus Anderson? I think maybe it was. It took Drysaddle down along the boards, but while he was on the way way down, Leon was able to get a stick on the puck and slide it through to McDavid in the slot with a clear look at the net, and ding, McDavid rings right in off the post, uh, uh, past the embattled uh, uh, Jacob Markstrom uh, to end the series with a, you know, just a perfectly placed shot after the, I don't know, after the, uh, the nice pass uh, set up from Leon and who else to score the winning goal, but Connor McDavid and who else to set it up, but Leon Dreisaitl. These are the, the modern Oilers. And for Dreisaitl, it was a record, not just a milestone, but a record. It was his 15th assist in the series. Yeah. No player in the NHL history has ever scored more than 14 assists in a playoff series. Uh, Wayne Gretzky was among those that had done it in the in the past, and Drysaddle did it in just five games while basically playing on one leg or one and a half legs uh, by being compromised, certainly. And he just turned up his playmaking chops, and of course, feeding McDavid is never a bad idea at any time. You can get a first assist or a second assist by sending it to Connor. And in this case, Connor just rang it in off the post, and that, that was that. But... Uh, such a performance by Leon in the series. He had three points in all five games. Yeah, and it, <laughs> it was the uh, the uh, 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 the previous playoff record. I think was three three plus point games in a row, and he got five. There were so many milestones yeah. set in that series. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Zach Kleinman his injury set, set several of them, and it's uh, it's a uh, a feat that still I hold in some awe to this day. Oh yeah, I mean it's when you go back and and read the list of records that McDavid and Drysital were either uh, had either broken or were chasing just in that one round alone. It's it's makes it even more, more remarkable that Drysital was doing it uh, on one leg basically. <laughs> but uh, that combination of the dynamic duo is just more than the Flames could handle, and probably. Uh, Brought back some memories of watching Gretzky and Curry together work their, work their magic in the the mid '80s. So, yeah, to to get to see those was the closest that I've ever seen to that type of offensive dominance in the playoffs. And uh, for me, who didn't start following the NHL until the mid to late '90s, I mean, this this was 
after the 2006 Cup run, this was probably the the greatest run of hockey that I had ever uh, been able to watch, and uh, just a just an incredible spring of I think the playoff run lasted 36 days of uh, of hockey that they gave us that that spring in 2022. Yeah, well, in that series, um, uh, Drysaddle they. They played, of course, five games, two goals, 15 assists, 17 points, plus eight. McDavid, three goals, nine assists, 12 points, plus nine. Hyman, six goals, two assists, eight points, plus seven. Kane, five goals, one assist, plus two. And and Nugent Hopkins, uh, six points as well. And so, the you know, the big Oilers scorers scored. Yeah. And ultimately, that, you know, that was the difference in all of their wins. They got four or five goals and they were, uh, um, you know, they were just able to outscore not just their mistakes, but their opponents. And if I'm not mistaken, McDavid led the playoffs in points. Dreisaitl led the playoffs in assists and Kane led the playoffs in goals. Yes. And they didn't even reach the Stanley Cup final. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> it so just three, made... three different guys in the three categories. Yeah. And they, uh, yeah, Kane, I think he might've been tied in the end. I think maybe, but still, uh, yeah, he got, even McKinnon if it's a tie. caught him, but in the, you know, in the fourth round. Yeah. yeah. I mean, even this year, Dreisaitl led the, the playoffs and goals, but with a tie, I think yeah. with March or so, but, yeah. um, I mean, an incredible feat. You, you look at McDavid also first player to lead the league in regular season scoring and playoff scoring in the same year since Evgeny Malkin in 2008, 2009. And the first player to lead the playoffs in scoring without reaching the final since Peter Forsberg in 2001-2002. So he really took his game to another stratosphere during that playoff run where he was over two points a game and basically carried it through all the way last year in the regular season and playoffs as well. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they had McDavid and Dreisaitl both averaged two points a game in the playoffs and they were the first guys to do it in a long long yeah. time unbelievable i don't think dry playoff run gets recognized as enough but he was only one point behind mcdavid uh yeah. in, the, in the 2022 playoffs so just an incredible run bruce i want to say thanks again for sticking with me here for mm-hmm. uh, nearly two and a half hours talking about <laughs> uh you know, as per usual for the the four episodes that we've done. And uh, like I said, it's always great talking about the glory days of the past, although it's also fun getting to talk about the modern day Oilers as well. Glory days of the recent past. Exactly. And, you know, five out of the six series that we recapped tonight uh, ended on a positive note from an Oilers fan's perspective. So like I said, just always a pleasure to have you on the show here. And hopefully, uh, with the Heritage Classic this weekend, and that's going to be the biggest battle of Alberta since the 2022 playoffs. The, that game will uh, also end with a, a positive result. Got some stats for you before we go. 23 right. wins for the Oilers, 12 for Calgary. <laughs> of course, you mentioned five series wins to one. 157 goals for Edmonton, 116 for Calgary. So significant in the Oilers' favor. And let's just remember that the last three times that the Oilers met Calgary, that Calgary had the home ice advantage. And from the perspective of um, uh, fans in the Saddle Dome, their last 
second of hockey in those three years were Wayne Gretzky scoring in overtime in game two of 88, Essa scoring in overtime in game seven of 91, and Connor McDavid scoring in overtime <laughs> in game five of 2022. Have I a nice it. summer. <laughs> there you go. Bruce, uh, fantastic. Uh, are you working on anything at the Cult of Hockey before we call it a night? Yeah, nothing quite so happy, I'm afraid. Mm. I'm writing a post today. I went to the game last night and had some observations, and then I was sitting in the end zone sort of watching the the East-West game, which you can see so well from uh, behind the net where I love to sit as an old goalie. And then I forced myself to sit through the entire 3,600 seconds uh, today uh, just watching the replay of of the North-South game. And in neither game did it look very good at all. They've got problems. They got problems. And, well, uh, uh, but I mean, lots of time to solve them. Yeah. But uh, uh, time to get started with it. No better time than Sunday in the Heritage Classic against the uh, <laughs> Calgary Flames. I couldn't think of a better time to start a winning streak. And <laughs> I I will be driving out to Edmonton tomorrow. So I look forward to being, I was at the Heritage Classic in 2016 in Winnipeg as well. Oh, yeah. oh right, did, right. The Oilers won, eh? Yeah. Uh, the shutout. They did. It was, they did an outstanding job of hosting it. Um, and uh, I'm looking forward to this one as well. And I'll also quickly mention that that alumni game in Winnipeg was the only mm-hmm. time I've ever watched Wayne Gretzky play live. Mm-hmm. So that was actually the biggest reason why I went. I, I mean, I'm sure I would have went anyway, but when it was announced that there was going to be a, an alumni game, which they announced months in advance and that Wayne Gretzky was going to be a part of it. I said, you know, I'm 27 years old at the time. He retired when I was 10. This is probably going to be his last yeah. one of these old-timer type games. So if I'm ever going to see my hero play live, mm-hmm. this is going to be it. And it didn't really matter to me uh, how he was playing at the time or, you know, what right. what he was able to bring. There were obviously better players, younger players mm-hmm. on the ice. Um, but Even just in getting, 03, he was sort of a shadow of... yeah. Right. But he doesn't skate consistently. I mean, there there are players who, like Mark Messier and Paul Coffey, <laughs> really stood out in that game. And they're roughly the same age as right. Wayne. So um, you can tell the guys who are still on the skates regularly and right. still either play pickup hockey or are involved with games. But, you know, Wayne said it multiple times. He doesn't skate anymore. He skates mm-hmm. like once or twice a year. Um, you know, he skated his whole life, so uh, I don't blame him for being at that stage of his uh, career, but it was just great to get the chance to see him live one time. No doubt. Yeah, well, I was lucky enough to see him play live roughly 500 times, <laughs> and, uh, you know, I mean, that's a hockey fan's dream come true, surely. Yeah, And for to sure. see the great team that surrounded him as well. So uh, those are memories that I cherish to this day. Absolutely. And I'm sure that I will have you back on the show in the future to talk about uh, more of uh, Gretzky and the Oilers milestones from those days. Sounds good. All right, Bruce, have a good night. Thank you, Eric. Thanks for listening. Everybody who's hung in there. It's uh, (laughs) it's fun to talk about old times. So for Bruce McCurdy, I'm Eric Friesen. This has been the 99 Forever podcast. We're out.